So histrionic personality disorder is just another name for hysteria. I just want to get that out in the front because I actually didn't know that until kind of recently. So, and I feel stupid for not knowing that, but I always sort of thought hysteria was some ancient thing that was in psychology, but there was this other thing called histrionic personality disorder. So I just want to let everyone know histrionic personality disorder is just another name for hysteria. Histrionic is like the adjective version of hysteria. Instead of saying hysterical personality disorder, they just decided to use histrionic personality disorder, probably because the word hysteria or hysterical is associated with, with other things now in the English language. But anyway, so now, now that you know that, I just want to say up front here that hysteria and histrionic personality disorder is extremely important to our field. I don't know if everyone knows this. It's, it's perhaps the most important diagnosis in the history of psychotherapy. One could even say that psychotherapy was founded on the treatment of hysteria. For instance, Freud's first patients were hysterical or histrionic. The history of hysteria goes all the way back to ancient Egypt and ancient Greece, which is crazy to think about. And many of these ancient ideas can still be seen in the current thinking about hysteria. For thousands of years, hysteria has been the cornerstone of psychotherapy and psychology, but Histrionic personality disorder and hysteria are falling out of favor within the field of psychotherapy. So much so that it was almost left out of the newest diagnostic manual in 2000 or in 2013, the DSM-5. Well, today I'm going to talk about why it was almost left out of the DSM-5 and why it will probably be left out of the next DSM even though it has a rich history within our field. In this episode, I'm also going to talk about the history of hysteria and, his, and histrionic personality disorder. And the, his, the history is fascinating. I, I had no idea how interesting the history is. It involves Hippocrates and Plato and Aristotle and Freud and all these other people. I'm also going to talk about the symptoms of histrionic personality disorder the social context, the culture around it, why people develop it, what's the genesis of hysteria, what are the common presentations, what does it look like in people, what's the treatment of histrionic personality disorder, and other sorts of things I, I want to talk about. That is what I'm, I've, I've done a deep dive into this topic. I initially was just going to do a short episode on this, but as usual, when I get down a rabbit hole, I this, you know, this is, it's actually been, I don't know, like a month long rabbit hole of hysteria for me. I've been hysterical about history, his, hysteria. And so this is going to be a long one. So buckle up people. Welcome to the psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this, and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode on hysteria, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Patrons get access to all the premium episodes on their phones or on the Patreon page. When you become a patron, we'll tell you how to access the premium feed on your phone. And a portion of your monthly pledge goes toward various charities that we support. Welcome to the Patron Zone, people. We love you very much for being patrons. Thanks a lot. 
Let me just talk about some of my first experiences with the word hysteria. Just want to talk about my own personal life when it comes to hysteria. The first, uh, I imagine, I, I, the first time I heard the word his, his, hysteria was things like uh, just labeling someone as hysterical. I, I would imagine that it was usually a woman, you know, saying, oh my God, look at her, she's so hysterical, meaning that she's overreacting or she's weak. Usually, you know, a woman would be crying over something and he said, oh, my God, she's so hysterical. It was in a judgy, said in a judgy way, you know. Look at that hysterical woman crying and overreacting and being weak. There's something wrong with her. Um, and I think another one of my first memories with the word hysteria was the album by Def Leppard, Hysteria. <laughs> um, you know, I think Pour Some Sugar On Me is on that album. I remember their album before that I really liked, and then when Hysteria came out, I hated it. I also remember people talking about hysterical, meaning when someone's funny, right? Oh my God, that's so funny. You're so hysterical. <laughs> it's interesting that the word would evolve into that too. You know, it's just kind of a weird thing. Also, I remember hearing about mass hysteria. I think I heard about it in high school when we were learning about learning about the Salem witch trials, you know, mass hysteria. Uh, I learned about it in graduate school when I became a therapist. I remember the professor talking about, hyster you know, histrionic personality disorder as someone who was very sexually provocative, someone who seduced their therapist a lot. And I'm sure it was described in more detail to me, but that that's what that's all I remembered was that histrionic people seduce their therapists. That's that's what I that's what I remember from graduate school. Then in consultation with other therapists after I graduated, very occasionally someone would mention that they had a histrionic client. And it was always a male therapist with a female client. Whenever I heard about anyone talking about hysteria, it was always a male therapist claiming that they had a female histrionic client. They would say something like, she came in with a super short skirt on. It was obvious that she was trying to seduce me. She's clearly histrionic or something like that. And these descriptions, these descriptions from these male therapists, usually older white male therapists, just incidentally, they, they always made me feel uncomfortable because I had worked with female clients who dressed, quote-unquote, provocatively, but I never thought they were histrionic. I just thought, well, that's just the way they like to dress. Who, who am I to judge? You know, people can dress however they want to dress. What's, you know, why do I need to instantly think they're trying to seduce me? You know, if some woman walks into my office with, I don't know, a lot of cleavage showing or something, I, my automatic thought isn't they're trying to seduce me or that they have a personality disorder. I just, you know, it's data. It's like, okay, well, that's how they're dressed. But, you know, usually in my experience, the way people dress is just a matter of their culture. It's just a matter of where they come from and what sort of person they think that they are and not usually an indication of pathology. Now, that isn't to say that people don't exhibit their characterological issues in their dress because they absolutely do, but... I just don't automatically think if a woman is dressed, you know, provocatively that she's histrionic. It's just not automatic for me. And that's what I would hear. 
Okay, so then a few weeks ago, in group supervision, a supervisee started talking about a client. And I started wondering if this client was histrionic. And so let, let me go into this just for a second. The therapist in training, my, my supervisee, she was really upset about one of her clients. The client was being very difficult in therapy, and my supervisee, she didn't know what to do. So I noticed that she, you know my supervisee was very upset, didn't know what to do, and so I asked her to tell me more information about this client. And the more I learned about the client, the more I thought the client might be histrionic. For instance, just some data here, and I always switch around the data or keep it vague so that I don't reveal who the client is. So the client was highly animated in session. The client made the therapist feel very afraid. And this was actually the key thing that sort of made me go down the road of asking about histrionic was because it seemed as though, because, you know, for, for many supervisees, they'll be talking about a client and they'll say, yeah, you know, this client, I don't know what to do. But they don't necessarily feel threatened by the client. They'll just be like, oh, this, this, this client feels stuck or something. But this supervisee seemed to be indicating that she felt threatened by the client, even though the client wasn't saying anything overtly threatening. And so I asked her, I said, do, do you feel afraid of the client? And she said, yes, I feel very afraid of the client. And then I say, well, has the client done anything aggressive or threatened you in any overt way? And the therapist said sheepishly, no, actually, I don't know why I'm afraid of this client. And that usually is an indicator of a personality disorder, usually cluster B, right? So that was my first indication. Okay, we might be looking at borderline psychopathy, maybe histrionic. And I got more information. The, the supervisee, she told me, that she never felt like she was having a real conversation with the client. She told me that the client was very demanding in session and could not tolerate it if the therapist focused on the child instead of the mother. The client, because the, the client came in with uh, her child, her son. The client was, was not able to function with a team of professionals helping her and she would say things and do things that would suck people into helping her and taking care of her. Another indication there. The, ther the, client, the client would shoot herself in her own foot often, if you know what I mean. The client could be described as very dramatic by others. The client reported feeling empty when she slows down. The mother, uh, the client, would say highly provocative things in session in front of her child. Things like, I'm going to get my kid drunk so he will calm down. Or maybe I should just give my kid up for adoption. And so this mother, this client, would repeatedly say things like this to the therapist, even though the therapist would strongly discourage this sort of behavior in session. So even though the therapist is saying, no, 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 you can't get your kid drunk, you know that that's not possible. That's, you know, and if you do that, I'm going to have to report you to the authorities. And so even though the therapist is saying things like this, the, the mother would uh, continually or every now and then drop that into a session and make it seem like it was real. And the therapist would be very uh, worried about the situation there. 
And also, the client had a history of getting into conflict with other professionals, other therapists, other doctors, and these kinds of people. So, so as I started to gather this information, I started wondering if this client was histrionic. Now, I'll never know for sure because I'm not in the room with the client yet. When it comes to personality disorders, you really have to experience them in person. But you can help people through consultation or supervision to make that assessment in person and help them to conceptualize these things, particularly when it comes to personality disorders because they're they're not easily understood by supervisees and trainees. But as I started to describe and conceptualize this client with in this group of supervisees that this person might be histrionic, all the supervisees in the room, or most of them anyway, they told me that they'd never really heard anyone talk about histrionic before. And and I was and I said, what do you mean? And well they said, we remember it learning about it in psychopathology, but but no one's ever uh, you know, applied it in the in the real world, and so this is very interesting. And so I was like, "Huh? Is it, yeah, like that's I could see that because histrionic is just not discussed very often anymore in our in our profession." So then I thought maybe I should do a podcast about histrionic, and so here we are. Well, then you know, three or four weeks of me rabbit holing on the whole thing, um, and and here I am now. At uh, late at night, trying to finish this before I go to bed. Okay, so first off, I just want to say, as I've already kind of indicated, personality disorders in general are very weird. It took me years to get to get a grasp on them, sort of, and I still I still sometimes wonder if I am understanding personality disorders fully. Whenever I hear a lay person in the media diagnosing someone with a personality disorder, I severely roll my eyes because uh, us clinicians, even us experienced ones, are usually very tentative about diagnosing someone with a personality disorder. The criteria are just too vague and people are too complex and you have to experience the person and, and you have to you have to feel their personality in person, if that makes any sense. You, you have to be in the room. You have to be interacting with that person over time. And you just have to feel what it's like to be in a relationship with them. Whereas when it comes to all the other, many of the other disorders in the DSM, like depression or anxiety, you can diagnose that very easily, even without meeting the person. Not always, but... But I can diagnose someone with, with depression fairly easily just by, you know, running through a few symptoms with them. And, but when it comes to personality disorders, it's very difficult. All this recent talk about, you know, different political candidates having different personality disorders is just, as I've said in previous podcasts, a joke because that's just not a clinically sound position to take. And when lay people start throwing around these, these words, I, I, I'm concerned about that because it. I think it dilutes the meaning of these words, and it's inaccurate. It's just frankly inaccurate. So, anyway, all right. So let's talk about the history of hysteria and histrionic personality disorder. The first description of hysteria was made in ancient Egypt in 1900 BCE. I just want to say this again. <laughs> So this is 3,900 years ago, 3,900 years ago, 
This is, you know, almost 2000 years before Christ, before a common era. The first description of hysteria pops up in ancient Egypt. Early Egyptian physicians observed that there were these women who were overly emotional. And for some reason, these early Egyptian physicians would blame this, this over emotionality among women. They would blame it all on the uterus. They thought that the uterus would sometimes move around inside the woman. It would migrate around in the body. And since it involved the uterus, of course, it was thought that only women could suffer from this disease. And when it wandered around, it produced over-emotionality and strange bodily complaints. But to me, it's, it's just like, why a wandering uterus? Now, the reason why I'm focusing on this is because this idea of the wandering uterus persisted for millennia until quite recently, maybe even into the 20th century. So this this very strange idea, I mean, it could have been blamed on anything, right? It could have been blamed on the breasts or, I mean, I understand why they pointed out the uterus because it's like, well, we have this thing that we think is only in women. What do women have that men don't have? Well, they have this uterus thing. So maybe it's because of that, that they will develop this issue. Okay, I could see that, you know, but a wandering uterus, what evidence could they have seen that would make them think the uterus moved around inside the body? Because it's not like they, you know, did an autopsy and found the uterus, you know, up in the shoulder or anything, you know, that I'm sure whenever they opened up people, they, if they knew about a uterus, they must have opened up people and they would have seen that it was always in the same spot. So I don't know, it's just a strange, strange thing. Now, some of you might already be thinking, is this PMS-related? Is this premenstrual syndrome? Is that what we're talking about? Well, it's kind of a complicated question and one that it's hard to answer because we don't have a time machine and we can't go back to these early times and ask what they were thinking and what they were seeing. But it seems likely that at least PMS was at least somewhat related. But as we move forward in the story, you'll see that the symptoms associated with hysteria and histrionic are much broader or even just completely different than the symptoms that we usually associate with PMS today. You know, PMS today, we would associate with mood swings, with being tired, with cramps and, and bloating and, and other kind of pain, sleep problems, this kind of thing. You know, we're pretty familiar with that. And as I go forward, you'll, you'll hear that the symptoms associated with hysteria are, are sometimes including those, but really much broader than that. You know, things like depression, actual ongoing depression, psychosis. I mean, we don't think of psychosis or delusions or hallucinations. We don't think of that as being associated with PMS. Nervous system problems like being numb you know, your your legs going numb, other conversions, other somatic problems, seizure disorders. We don't usually think of PMS being associated with seizures. It just seems to me that it's, so this is just my guess as to what was happening. Ancient physicians noticed that women often exhibited strange symptoms, and it seemed maybe to be related to the uterus because it seemed to happen to only 
women who were menstruating. You know, you had prepubescent girls who didn't have these symptoms, and you had older women who didn't have these symptoms. But you had this this group of this is all just me guessing. I had I didn't read anything about this, but looking at history through my eyes, it just seems like and trying to figure out why they would associate it with this wandering uterus thing. It just seems like okay, the vagina it you know blood comes out once a month and it seems like they have when they're doing that it seems to be uh, associated with these symptoms and when they're pregnant they actually don't have these symptoms because well you know perhaps because they don't have pms but the but because they didn't understand things back then the way we do now which is understandable since they didn't have the history of science that we do now but they started, you know, they didn't know really realize what they were seeing. So they just lumped in a bunch of other symptoms that they didn't understand, which was pretty much everything related to psychology and medicine at the time. And so they just, they, you know, I think it might, might've began as a conception of PMS, but then they threw in everything they could, they observed in women that they couldn't explain. And then the diagnosis of hysteria ended up in the end, only having like 10% or 5% of it, including the PMS presentation, but, and the rest of it was all this other junk kind of thrown in there. So that's a complete guess, but it, I don't know, it seems to make some sense to me when I read about the history. So keep all of this in mind that PMS is probably at least a small part of the story and w why we see hysteria in the way that we do. So just keep that in mind as we move forward through the history and into the modern times. Treatment back then in ancient Egypt, 4,000 years ago, involved applying a sweet-smelling substance or dried excrement of men around the vagina in order to lure the uterus back to the vagina. I just want to say this again. So, you know, by the vagina, so because they thought the uterus was wandering around, they wanted to lure the uterus back to the vagina. So they would put by the vagina, how many times in this episode can I say the word vagina? Let's count. Let's make it a drinking game. Um, to lure the uterus back to the crotch area, <laughs> they would put sweet smelling things, you know, like flowers by the vagina. It's, you know, it's like, come here, come here, uterus. Come to the vagina. Here's a flower. It's nice down here. Or they would put dried man poo. <laughs> so either, you know, something that smelled nice, or they would take the poo of a man that was dried, and they'd put it by the vagina, and that would coax the uterus back to the vagina. Okay. So, now, the wandering uterus thing, bizarre. The sweet-smelling substances, I can kind of get, you know? Because people are attracted to things that smell nice, so maybe uteruses or uteri are also attracted to sweet-smelling things. So, sweet-smelling things, I get. But dried man poo? I mean, <laughs> that can't smell good, so what's up with that? But anyway... And then, in addition to these things by the vagina, they would put bad-smelling things in the woman's face 
and this would drive the uterus. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just picturing this, you know, in ancient Egypt with the pyramids and whatnot. And, you know, there's these poor women who are just suffering from a bad day and they've got, you know, dried man poo in between their legs and they have a doctor shoving bad smelling things in their face and the doctor is saying, this is going to help, I swear to God. It's, it's, we're going to drive your uterus back to your vagina and then you won't be so emotional anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I can't, you can't judge the past because they're just working with what the best they have. But you just got to wonder if some ancient Egyptian physician is just laughing his ass off that it took us 4,000 years to figure out he was wrong. Maybe he's just been trolling us the entire time. Anyway, um, now it, it's difficult to tell what was really happening back then because we just have, you know, very minimal documentation of what was going on. But there's, there's enough evidence to me anyway, to conclude that this, this was all a form of sexism. You know, it's like, Oh, these annoying women, because the men controlled everything, right? So you got oh these, these women being annoying and overly emotional. And why are they always complaining? And they have all these physical complaints, and they just need to stop bothering me. I wonder what's wrong with them. There must be something wrong with these human beings, these women, these pesky women and all their stupid complaints about wanting equal rights and stuff. And it, it, it so it must be their uterus, you know, there must be something wrong with it. I mean, it's a similar thing is said about men, you know, today it's like, well, you know, men and with all their violence and all their craziness and stupidity, it must be their testosterone, right? You'll hear that. You'll see, so, oh, testosterone, it's such a bad thing. We need more estrogen in our, you know, it's a similar kind of thing. You, you see it all the time. But anyway, so it's like, oh, it must be their uterus, this, these pesky women and their, and their uterus. It's, uh, but I'll get more into the sexism later. Just want to, just want to drop that in right there. Okay. So after the ancient Egyptians, who talked about hysteria almost 4,000 years ago, the ancient Greeks learned of this disorder from the, Egypt, from the Egyptians, and they renamed it, the Greeks renamed it hysteria. So hysteria means uterus, it means of the uterus. So hyster in Greek means uterus. Hyster is, is Greek for uterus. And so hysteria literally means of the uterus of the uterus. It'd be like calling a headache brainia, you know, like, oh, she, she's suffering from brainia. Well, it's the same with hysteria. She's suffering from hysteria or she's suffering from of the uterus. You know, she's, she's, her, her uterus is acting up essentially is what hysteria means. Early Greek mythology talked about Melampus who was a mythological Greek physician. And there, this myth is considered to be the foundation of the concept of hysteria within Greek culture. Melampus, this, you know, f fabled doctor, was called upon to treat a bunch of virgins. In this myth, the virgins were refusing to honor a huge penis symbol, or the phallus. I'm not making this up. Apparently, in ancient Greek culture, which is, you know, like 
3,000 years ago or something, there were these huge penises or phalluses that were representations of the gods of some sort. But anyway, everyone was upset with these virgins for not honoring the huge penises. And so these virgins were worried that some things, you know, that the townspeople were going to punish them. So they fled into the mountains. And the townspeople were wondering, well, why aren't these virgins honoring the big penis like all the other virgins before them? What's wrong with these girls? So they figured, huh, well, they must be mentally ill. (laughs) It, It couldn't possibly be that they just don't want to worship a big penis it, it must there's something must be wrong with their with their soul and so the townspeople they called Melampus this this doctor and uh, Melampus came and decided I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right it's spelled Melampus but anyway the, he, he came and he diagnosed their mental illness as being caused by a lack of sex and a lack of orgasms. These virgins need to get laid. So he, you know, went to them in the mountains and gave them special herbs that were supposed to help them. And they, and he encouraged them all to have sex with strong men. (laughs) The, The, you know, the prescription was get laid by a strong dude. And these virgins did. And they were cured of their mental illness, and they returned to civil civil society, uh, where everyone honored the big penis. So later in history, you know, closer to modern times, in the fifth century BC. So this is twenty five hundred years ago. In case you're wondering, Hippocrates, who is considered to be the father of modern medicine. He was the first to coin the term hysteria. It's, it's so strange that we still use this word today. I mean, this is 2,500 years ago. This dude in Greece, you know, says, let's call it hysteria because it has to do with the uterus. And I'm just so fascinated with, with ancient Greek culture and ancient Roman culture because there, there's so much of our society that is based on these tiny little decisions that all these people made back then. Anyway, so Hippocrates, you've probably heard of him because the Hippocratic Oath is named after him, which is, you know, the oath that all physicians are supposed to take. Do no harm and among other kinds of oaths that they take. Hippocrates, he observed women with the following symptoms. He observed women exhibiting anxiety and fear and a sense of suffocation like they were like they couldn't breathe. They had tremors in their, you know, limbs. They would convulse sometimes, like seizures, and they would have uh, paralysis. So this is, you know, when you think about these, you know, these symptoms, it's sort of interesting, right? Anxiety, a sense of suffocation, tremors, convulsions, and paralysis. How would someone like that, with symptoms like that, be seen today? Well, you know, they'd be seen as someone who was scared, and, you know, the sense of suffocation, or, you know, you couldn't breathe, well, that's a, that's a symptom of anxiety. Tremors, you know, because they've, they've got adrenaline going. But convulsions and paralysis, 
I mean, that's, you know, it's a little different. Paralysis while they're conscious, right? Like they can't move their legs anymore. Today, we might call those conversions. You know, if they're really stressed out, people will have bodily experience, you know, bodily manifestations of their stress like paralysis. But it's just, it's an interesting set of symptoms that they put together. And and it, this whole, you know, this idea of hysteria persisted until, you know, rather recently or even today. But anyway, Hippocrates, he set out to figure out why these women suffered from these symptoms. After some sort of research process, he came to believe that a restless and migratory uterus, along with poisonous stagnant humors, are to blame for the condition of hysteria. You know, humors, you've probably heard of humors before. And this was consistent with medical beliefs at the time. So it wasn't like he invented his, his conceptualization of hysteria was some kind of weird anomalous thinking among the medical field at the time. It, there, were, there were many different medical beliefs that were similar to this at the time. Hippocrates believed that a woman's body is internally cold and wet and therefore is prone to decay and other bad things. And because of all this, the uterus is prone to illness because women's bodies are in, internally cold and wet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm missing something in the translation, but um, it's just interesting, you know, to think because, you know, women are just as warm as men are on the inside <laughs> and just as wet. But anyway, um, the uterus, it was believed by Hippocrates, is especially prone to illness if it is deprived, if it if it is deprived of sex and pregnancy, so a healthy woman is a woman that has sex a lot and gets pregnant a lot, you know, which is just an interesting message to be giving to society, right? Um, so Hippocrates believed that virgins, widows, single women, and sterile sterile women were prone to the disease of hysteria since they weren't getting any sex. And the treatment, of course, he recommended that these women should always be married and having sex with their husbands. Isn't that interesting? He also treated hysteria with bad-smelling and good-smelling things to push the uterus back into place, just you know, the same as the, the mythological Melampus did and the ancient e Egyptians did. So you can see that you know, there's similarities to the ancient Egyptian idea, but you know they're developing on it. They're 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 changing it, adding to it a little bit. So, Hippocrates, his understanding of hysteria persisted until one hundred years ago. Just, <laughs> so, this dude from twenty five hundred years ago, who was pulling from knowledge that was already fourteen or fifteen hundred years old. You know, so Hippocrates, when he's looking back, you know, he's looking way back to ancient Egypt and, you know, learning about his, you know, hysteria and women's problems and stuff. And so he conceptualizes this idea of hysteria 2,500 years ago. And then his ideas basically, you know, they, they kind of morph a little bit over time within the Western world, but they pretty much persisted until a hundred years ago, which is just crazy. 
you know, this, this ridiculous, unscientific, misogynistic diagnosis that includes anxiety and paralysis and convulsions and all these other symptoms that don't really seem to fit together. Doctors were using this concept in the 20th century. <laughs> it's just so weird to me. But I'll, I'll get more into that later. And, you know, I, I don't fault Hippocrates for getting things wrong. Again, it was a long time ago, and he didn't have the scientific tools we have available today. But for almost 4,000 years in the Western world, we were diagnosing women as having, you know, a wandering uterus, like and that's why they're so overly emotional. I mean, you know, gosh, it's just so weird. I mean, what if, you know, ancient Egypt had blamed it on, like I said, you know, like women's nipples or something, you know, and today we'd, we'd be calling, you know, women having nipple disorder, personality disorder. Because, <laughs> you know, when we say histrionic personality disorder, we're, we're essentially saying they have a uterus personality disorder. <laughs> okay. So after Hippocrates in 360 BCE, so we're still talking, you know, 20, 20, almost 2,400 years ago, Plato wrote about how when a woman's uterus wanders around like a wandering animal, it blocks things and causes disease, similar to Hippocrates. Plato argued that the uterus is sad when a woman is neglected of sex and neglected of being pregnant, same as Hippocrates. Then Aristotle followed in Plato's footsteps and also believed in this wackadoodle idea. Okay, so skipping forward in time to the first century AD, Sorinus, a Greek physician practicing in Alexandria and Rome, and he was also the founder of scientific gynecology and obstetrics, the first OBGYN, shall we say, Sorinus. He believed that the cure for hysteria does not lie in putting smelly things by a woman's vagina. He believed the cure lies in sexual abstinence and in hot baths, in massage, and in exercise. So I, this is very interesting. So we have this, this minor shining beacon in the history of hysteria in the, you know, even within the very culture that was, you know, staunch believers in the wandering uterus thing. We have this guy, Soranus, who, you know, was very focused on the health of the vagina and the health of birth, the birthing process. So he probably spent a lot of time with women and could probably, and, you know, probably heard a lot more from them and got their trust. And he's like, you know what, putting smelly things you know, and putting nice smelly things by the vagina, you know, that doesn't seem to work because why would it work? Right. And he starts figuring out, okay, I have these overly emotional women with all these, you know, all these complaints, these bodily complaints. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that sexual abstinence, not more sex actually helps. Now, that one's a bit of a strange one because it's hard to know what that, you know, actually meant. But it could mean in a, you know, heavily misogynistic culture, it could mean that the women could take a break from having to deal with their husbands. But he also found that hot baths helped. I mean, today, you're going to find 
doctors and therapists prescribing hot baths to all sorts of people as a stress reliever reliever. He also found that massage helped and he also found that exercise helps. So there's this weird shining beacon that, uh, as we go on in further in history, apparently no one was listening to, but, uh, so I just want to point out that again, I'm not, I'm only going over some of the highlights of the history of hysteria and, so you should know that there were a lot of twists and turns and there were people that came along that seemed to be getting somewhere and then their voice would get drowned by the din of everybody else. And so here's a, here's a nice little voice. Um, okay. So in general, during this time, the Greeks treated hysteria the same as the Egyptians, but they also prescribed sexual activity. In general, the Greeks saw women as needing sex more than men. And when women didn't get enough sex, they might develop hysteria. That's what they believed. In other words, they might start complaining and getting emotional and ha- get, having stress, uh, bodily you know, symptoms. So the prescription was to have sex with them. Essentially, I mean, in a way, you could see it as it's a way to get them to be quiet and docile. You know, that's my interpretation. When women were quiet and docile, they were considered healthy. And when they were complaining, you know, it, was con- it was considered it must be something wrong with them. Again, that wandering uterus thing. But I just want to take a little side no- sidebar here and say that this is just another data point that corroborates the notion that gender and sexuality, these, these things are socially constructed. Today in Western society, for instance, men are seen as the horny ones and women are seen as the non-horny ones. But as you can see, other cultures, other times, they constructed sexuality very differently. For the ancient Greeks, for instance, women were the horny ones and men were the non-horny ones. Which, if you just you know, brought that notion to any American anyway, they'd be like, that's ridiculous. You know, obviously men are born more horny. But here we have another culture where it was the opposite. And so all the claims within evolutionary psychology that men evolved to spread, you know, their millions of seeds everywhere and women evolved to be stingy with their one egg per month. This is not supported by the evidence when other cultures are considered. In other words, men and women, biologically speaking, are probably much more similar than we tend to tell ourselves. And gender is largely a product of socialization. Okay end of soapbox slash sidebar. So after the first century AD and forward, as the idea of hysteria spread around Europe and elsewhere, the Western world, and also Christianity spread throughout the Western world and elsewhere, the view of hysteria was slightly altered to be interwoven with Christianity. For instance, in addition to the wandering uterus, it was seen hysteria was seen as occurring when a woman allowed a demon to possess her. Hysterical women needed help from a religious person to rid her of the demon. So hysteria was seen as as a demon possession. Thousands of women, incidentally, were put to death for being in league with the devil and being hysterical. And during this time, Midwives took care of hysterical women by stimulating them to orgasm. 
but they also absolutely still believed in the wandering uterus thing. And again, as I said earlier, the history winds and turns, and there's lots of different moments, and most of what you know we know is just a small snippet of what was actually happening. So we just have a, a small peephole into history of this time. But so again, it seems like Christianity influenced the um, understanding, the medical understanding of hysteria, uh, and interweaving demon possession and needing a priest to get rid of the demon. And women were starting to be put to death for hysteria because, you know, it was seen as being in league with the devil. And again, during this time, I, and I don't know when this developed exactly, but by this time in Europe, they started saying, look, you know, if, if, if these women aren't going to have sex with their husband and have an orgasm, then they need to have an orgasm somehow because that is a cure for hysteria. And so who is going to help these women have an orgasm? They can't masturbate because that's a sin. So how else could they have an orgasm? Well, midwives, you know, they're usually down there during birth. So maybe they can be down there during non-pregnancy times and, and help the woman uh, have an orgasm. And therefore, uh, hysteria will be uh, lifted. This is a very interesting element in the history of hysteria because you just think about these women, you know, living in a time when masturbating was considered a sin and, you know, the likelihood of their husbands being good lovers, <laughs> educated lovers, uh, or giving lovers is, was pretty low. And so you have all these women walking around, having never experiencing orgasm or just maybe not enough anyway. And they, as, as a consequence get stressed out and irritable and, you know, backed up as we used to say in college. And then they say, huh, well, someone's got to help these women. Well, how about these midwives? And then these women start having orgasms and then they stop being irritable and they, they start having a happy look on their face and they start looking forward to the day and they think, Oh, okay, well, so midwives giving women orgasms must, must rid them of the demon inside of them, <laughs> which is, you know, probably an apt metaphor for the, for what was really happening. Um, okay. So there's a long and interesting story of hysteria from, AD, you know, the first century AD, you know, forward until the 1600s. But I'm going to skip over 1600 years because it just wasn't as notable as what was happening in the 1600s. So, so just think about that, okay? <laughs> in terms of the, the, the assessment and treatment of his, and the conceptualization of hysteria seemingly remained fairly similar to uh, the way the Greeks saw it and maybe even how the Egyptians saw it throughout the Western world, you know, year after year after year, just thousands of physicians and perhaps millions of patients being treated in exactly the same way, you know, for over and over and over again. <laughs> it's just, it's just interesting to think about how, how stable bad ideas would be, you know? Okay. So, now we skip forward to the 1600s 
and there were epidemics of hysteria during this time. It was cropping up everywhere. People were afraid of it, like the way people are afraid of terrorism today. They, uh, this fear of hysteria made its way across the Atlantic to the European settlements in America. For example, in 1692, we have our most famous outbreak of hysteria in Salem, Massachusetts, 1692. Two girls were observed having fits in which they were crying, screaming, and moaning, and they were observed as having their bodies convulsing, and they would babble incoherently. Other uh, described symptoms. Uh, so, so soon you had a bunch of other people exhibiting this hysteria. It started spreading like wildfire through Salem, Massachusetts. Other symptoms were uh, staring, you know, into nothing, making raucous noises. It was this, you know, raucous, you know, I don't know what that exactly means, but making muffled noises, <laughs> um, uncontrollable jumping, uncontrollable jumping. <laughs> so just picture that one. Sudden movements, you know, very sudden movements and a number of other symptoms. This, you know, we just imagine this. This sounds just so weird to me, you know. These teenage girls crying and then screaming and then moaning and then convulsing and then babbling and then staring into the distance and then making muffled noises and then jumping around uncontrollably like they can't stop themselves and then sudden movements and, and other symptoms. And it, it just sounds so weird to me, you know. And I wish we just had videotapes of this, but of course we don't. Eventually, once the dust settled, 19 girls and women were hanged as witches in Salem, and over 100 were sent to prison. So there were many, many uh, witches who were suffering from hysteria. So again, we have this mixture in Christianity of this old Egyptian Greek notion of hysteria mixed in with the Christian notion of demon possession. And so it's this, it's this cultural uh, amalgamation of these things. Incidentally, there have been a number, theory, number of theories about what these women and, and girls were actually suffering from. Some, some think it was perhaps a, poison, a poisonous fungus that was giving them these symptoms. Uh, many people today... Uh, think that they were just rebelling against oppression, that they were um, labeled as witches because they were actually fighting back against the system as early feminists, but it's hard to know. Some people think it was stress-related. Um, some people think it was a mob mentality. We'll probably never know the answer to this, but with the little I know about it, which isn't very much, it seems to me to be a contagious conversion, you know, like the way a yawn is contagious or the way a fad is contagious, you know, like wearing weird socks of some kind, you know, spreads its way through the population. Um, it, I, it would seem to me that one girl probably started acting weird for some unknown reason. And then it just spread through the population like a yawn does through through a population. Okay, so in the 1600s, hysteria was still conceptualized as the way Hippocrates saw it in ancient Greece. 
So this is about 3,500 years after ancient Egyptians first conceived of this idea or the documentation of that first idea. It, you know, in the 1600s, this is 2,100 years after Hippocrates first coined the term hysteria. And Western physicians around the globe were still diagnosing women with hysteria in a very similar way to, to Hippocrates. You know, this is just so strange to me. Uh, but again, as I said earlier, we have to be careful when we judge people of the past through our contemporary eyes. Uh, by the way, it should be noted that there were women physicians during this time, and they also ascribed to the same conceptualization of hysteria as men did. There were some notable slight variations, but for the most part, even the women physicians ascribed to hysteria in this strange way about the uterus wandering and about needing orgasm and that kind of stuff. Okay. So now, 1600s, moving forward, we enter the modern age, the Renaissance, the age of discovery, the enlightenment, age of enlightenment. We finally see the development in the Western world of early scientific methods and the value of empirical science rather than just uh, following myths and tradition. People start questioning myths. They start actually saying, well, is it really about the uterus? You know, let's, let's really look at this. For instance, English physician Thomas Willis, who practiced in the 1600s, Willis believed that hysteria was not attached to the uterus, but rather related to the brain. Whoa! 3,500 years, and this English guy, Thomas Willis, comes along and just says, like, you know what? I don't think hysteria has anything to do with the uterus. It's probably something related to the brain. <laughs> it's just so interesting. It's like, it's so obvious to us today, right, that any psychological condition would have to do with the brain. But to to him back then, it was, and to his community, it was like, of course, this has to do with the uterus. That's what people have always known. This is what is known. When women act weird, it has to do with the wandering uterus. And then this guy's come along and he's like, you know, actually, there's probably no evidence of that. I don't see any reason why that would be true. Rene Descartes, for another influential person when it comes to hysteria, and perhaps one of the most influential people in history, Rene Descartes, he also asserted that hysteria was a psychological issue, issue just like Thomas Willis. But uh, Willis and Descartes, they still saw it as a women's problem. They did not see it as a problem that men could have. In fact, hysteria has been seen by many to be a problem for all women. Many people throughout history have, have seen hysteria not to be just a malady that some women get, but they will say, well, all women are to some degree hysterical. They all have problems with their emotions. They're all, you know, they're all too emotional. There's something about women that just makes them weaker and more hysterical and more dramatic and just, they're just, there's just something about them, you know, so it's just massively sexist. So it seems that even though these people had the scientific method during the modern age, beginning of the modern age, they were still influenced by culture of, by the culture of gender, which is, you know, big surprise, right? 
which makes you wonder if current scientists are influenced by culture of gender. Hmm. You know, makes you wonder. I wonder if evolutionary psychologists today are influenced by gender in the same way that Willis and Descartes were back in their time. Just makes you wonder. All right. Even though these people saw hysteria as a psychological problem and not a uterus problem, they still treated it in exactly the same way. (laughs) So, for example, in 1653, Peter Van Forrest wrote about how to treat hysteria, and this is a direct quote from his writing. When these symptoms indicate, we think it necessary to ask a midwife to assist so that she can massage, massage the genitalia with one finger inside using oil of lilies, musk root, crocus, or something similar. And in this way, the afflicted woman can be aroused to orgasm. This kind of stimulation with the finger is recommended for widows, for those who live chaste lives, and for religious females. It is less often recommended for very young women, for public women, or for married women, or for whom it is a better remedy to engage in, in intercourse with their spouses. So in other words, they're, just, they're saying, um, so end quote, in other words, you know, this physician is saying, look, you treat hysteria by having women have orgasms, even though it's a psychological problem, you know, you still got to treat it the same way. And uh, if they're married, then they should just have sex with their spouse and have a orgasm that way, which of course isn't a guarantee of orgasm. Um, but if they're, uh, but if they're very chaste or if they're religious or if they're a widow, you know, these women aren't going to have sex with any man. So we better have a midwife give them an orgasm. And I just want to, it reads like a, I don't know, like a, 50 shades of gray or something, but I just want to read this first sentence again. When these symptoms indicate, so the symptoms of hysteria, we think it necessary to ask a midwife to assist so that she can massage the genitalia with one finger inside. (laughs) So it's really quite specific, you know, you know, you really, you really want to put a finger inside while you massage the clitoris because, you know, that's, that's what's going to work. It's just interesting to think about. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, in other words, uh, they still believe that hysteria was caused by a lack of orgasm. And if women can't get an orgasm from a man, then they should get one from mid- from a midwife. And they can't masturbate because that's considered a sin. Um, and you just got to figure like the weird morality of all this, right? It's like, Okay, we need to have women have orgasms. Clearly, that's the cure for hysteria. So, uh, but it's a sin to masturbate. So we're at a we're at a dilemma here. If the if the men if they don't have a man or if the man isn't giving them orgasms and they can't masturbate, you know, what are we going to do? Well, how about a midwife? And I can just imagine the way that they're thinking. It's like, well. You know, midwives are usually down there during pregnancies, doing all sorts of stuff down there. God knows what they're doing down there. And so, you know, you can 
add this to the list of things that they do, you know, just rub the clitoris, you know, it's no big deal. It's just, it's probably really close to what they're doing down there anyway. It, it reminds me of, I don't know if this is true or not, but I remember hearing rumors that for young Christian Americans, they started having anal sex because it, there was nothing in the Bible that said anything about anal sex and anal sex isn't for reproduction. So it's like, it's like, you know, cause you know, sex is about reproduction. And, and so if, if you're not doing sex on the reproduction angle, then you're not really having sex. So therefore it's not a sin. So you had all these young Christian couples having, uh, avoiding intercourse because that was a sin, but instead having anal sex. <laughs> so again, I don't know if that's a, just an internet lie, but it's just, you know, when you're trying to figure out what to do or, when you hear about, um, you know, Orthodox Jewish families on the Sabbath because they can't use electrical things, they will hire a non-Jewish person to come over to the house and turn on their TV and stuff, you know. Um, again, I don't know if they have that exactly right, but it's just funny how, like, religions have these rules that you just sort of, there's ways around it, you know. And so there is these midwives uh, essentially having sex with, with these women, you know, I guess you could almost consider them like sex workers for these women. But anyway, other treatments during this time, during the 1600s included vigorous horseback exercise, <laughs> vigorous horseback exercise was a cure for hysteria, moving the pelvis in a swing, moving the pelvis in a swing you know, or in a rocking chair. You just kind of wonder, are, are women having orgasms in these situations or is it just sort of relaxing to have your, you know, I don't know. Um, they were also urged to marry and quote unquote, be strongly encountered by their husbands. <laughs> I bet you when you started listening to this episode on hysteria and histrionic personality disorder, you know, you clicked on it and you were like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to learn some, you know, stuff about psychology. I bet you had no idea that it would basically turn into a Fifty Shades of Grey episode. Um, so I just want to say this, this quote again. You know, a treatment, you know, you'd go to your physician, you'd have all these somatic complaints and emotional complaints, and, and the doctor says, okay, well, I know you haven't gotten married yet, but I really want you to find a man, get married, and as soon as you can, I want you to be strongly encountered by your husband, strongly encountered, not just encountered, not, you know, not medium encountered or weak. Encountered. I want you to be strongly encountered by your husband. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, Bill Clinton saying, I was not strongly encountered by that woman. <laughs> You know, for you couples out there, the next time you want to have some mommy and daddy time or mommy, mommy time or daddy, daddy time, just go up to your partner and say, honey, I would like to be strongly encountered by you tonight. Can you meet me in the bedroom? <laughs> strong, strong, <laughs> strongly encountered. Okay. In 1680, so we're still in the 1600s, still beginning the modern age, another English physician, Thomas Sydenham, 
He was perhaps the first to recognize that the label hysteria was being used for almost all diseases associated with women. He asserted that the term hysteria was too broad to be meaningful in a medical sense. So in this way, the 1600s, when you add all this up with Descartes and Willis and Sydenham and all this stuff, we are, we're, we're seeing the beginning of the end of hysteria. Because from ancient Egypt all the way up to the 1600s, you just see basically almost no progression in the understanding of hysteria and of psychology, for that matter. But the 1600s, people started really, you know, having these questions. They started questioning. It took a long time, you know, because really it, it took another 400 years or something for there to be the sort of things we understand today. But but it was beginning. Okay. So now we go to the 1700s, and we have German physician Franz on, on Anton Mesmer. Mesmer, this is where we get the word mesmerizing from, because he was, he was very mesmerizing. He treated hysteria through his magnetic action, uh, through his hands, and uh, he put it on, quote-unquote, diseased parts of the body. So Mesmer treated hysteria which I did not know. Okay, now we get up to the 1800s. We got 1858. And we have Baker Brown, Baker hyphen Brown. He's a physician and a very uh, infamous, horrible physician who was performing uh, clit clitorectomies or, you know, cutting off the clitoris in London. Baker Brown in London, he argued that this whole midwife orgasm thing, it did not cure hysteria. And it, it, he, he actually thought it just made it worse by making the patient more horny. So he's, you know, he's, he's seeing these hysterical women irritable with all these bodily complaints and, you know, sexuality problems. And he's, he's saying, look, uh, if you give them an orgasm, it just makes them worse. It just makes them want it more. So he decided instead to go the opposite direction, and he would cut the clitoris off without the patient's consent. Without the patient's consent, he would just cut it off. And as others observed his work in England, they thought that cutting off the clitoris made intractable women, quote-unquote intractable, and the, so this is a this is all a quote here. Intractable women became happy wives. Rebellious teenage girls settled back into the bosom of their families, and married women, formerly averse to sexual duties, became pregnant. So I just really want to point this out. Intractable. This is all a quote. Intractable women became happy wives. It's interesting, right? So if you cut off the clit, this this intractable woman will become a happy wife. A rebellious teenage girl cut off her clitoris and she will settle back into the bosom of, of her family. A married woman who doesn't want to have sex, you know, she's a married woman and my God, she doesn't want to have sex with her husband. Well, you cut off her clitoris and soon after that, she's pregnant. My God, holy F. Okay. 
So this practice of cutting off the clitoris spread to America, United States, in the 1800s as a cure for hysteria, also for a cure for nymphomania, and a cure for, ironically, masturbation. Or not ironically, but I guess sort of appropriately for masturbation. So in the United States, girls would be diagnosed as having a problem with masturbation, and so the doctor would just cut off the clitoris. The practice was continued all the way up in the United States well into, take a guess, just take a guess, the 1940s. The 1940s. When we were developing the atomic bomb to drop in Japan, some doctors were still cutting off the clitoris of women who were diagnosed as having hysteria. Okay, some of you might be wondering, okay, what, are, what exactly are the symptoms of hysteria? Which I'll get into more later of like, there's a long ass list. <laughs> but at, the, at this time, you know, during the modern age, there, there was a lot of different writing of hysteria, but there, there was some general consensus among some people that there were five main symptoms of hysteria during this time that they saw. Numbness. So some, some part of your body was numb. Another symptom was amnesia, some memory loss of some kind. The third symptom was a lack of willpower. You know, you just couldn't, couldn't get going. Uh, the fourth symptom was motor control problems. So some kind of, you know, like that jumping, uncontrollable jumping or, or just uncontrollable convuls, convulsions and, or tremors or something. And then the fifth uh, symptom was a modification of character. Modifi modification of character. So numbness, memory problems, lack of willpower, motor control problems, and modification of character. This is so strange. Because if you presented these five symptoms to a current psychologist, they would not lump these into one disorder. You know, if you're numb in part of your body they would probably assume, or I would, the most likely uh, answer is there's some kind of nervous system problem, like a pinched nerve or, you know, like you have a sciatica thing or, you know, like I'm not a physician, so I don't know, but I would assume if you have numbness in part of your body, it's probably a physical thing. Um, if someone had amnesia, uh, I would think they had a brain injury, like a stroke or a, a blow to the brain or... Uh, or I might think maybe drug abuse because you can have blackouts or brain injuries through drug abuse. Or I would think dissociation or something like that. But I wouldn't put the numbness with the amnesia. This third symptom, lack of willpower, I would think depression or grief or stress or PTSD or, you know, that's how I would conceptualize it. I definitely wouldn't put the numbness with the lack of willpower. I might put amnesia with a lack of willpower. You know, if someone's been abused and traumatized, they might have some memory problems along with some depression. And then this fourth symptom, motor control problems. Again, I would assume some sort of biological nervous system disorder, Parkinson's, or you know, I'm not a I'm, I'm not a biologist, so I don't know. But if you, if someone was having problems with their motor control, I would figure it's probably not psychogenic. Uh, but, you know, what do I know? And then this fifth 
symptom of modification and character. I'm not exactly sure what they meant by that, but I would think, again, depression or PTSD or some other kind of problem. And uh, But instead, these people in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, they would say, oh yeah, this is obviously a classic presentation of hysteria. And it's just so strange to see how we conceptualize disorders differently at different times, you know? Okay, now we've gotten to the good stuff. We've gotten to the good part of history where things really start happening. Okay, so the main reason we talk about hysteria and histrionic today is because of French neurologist Jean-Martin Martin Charcot. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Well, I'm just going to call him Charcot. Okay. Charcot was studying hysteria in the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s. Charcot believed that hysteria was caused by a hereditary degeneration of the nervous system. So he thought of it as a biological th- problem with the nervous system that you you acquired through, you know, from your parents. He believed it to be actually more common among men than women, which is very strange indeed, right? He believed, Charcot believed that more men suffered from hysteria than women. So this is quite a departure from the original uh, conceptualization of hysteria. And in 18, so you think, okay, Charcot is a good guy. You know, he's starting to de-sexistize this idea of, of hysteria. But then we go to the next part here. So in the 1870s, he was practicing in Paris, Charcot. It's a very exciting time for Paris. Lots of, lots of art and other things happening in Paris. Charcot... Well, he worked at a large women's hospital, and he turned it into a tourist attraction. He invited hundreds of people each week into the hospital, where he would display his hysterical patients for everyone else to gawk at. It's just terrible. It sounds awful. So he would take these suffering women in the hospital, and he would display them for all these, you know, ticket price, ticket buyers, <laughs> and, you know, just prayed them out like, uh, like a bunch of freaks or something. And it, it's just, it's just awful. There's actually a famous painting. If you just look up Charcot, uh, and hysteria, you can, there's a famous painting of Charcot. It's a, it's a, to some, it's considered like the beginning of psychology, um, because modern psychology was, was really beginning at this time. And Charcot was a major figure. Okay. The next major figure in history uh, of hysteria is another French person by the name of Pierre Genet. He was a psychologist and a psychotherapist. He is a major figure. If you've never heard of Genet, uh, now you're gonna. (laughs) Genet studied under Charcot. And Genet was fascinated by Charcot. Charcot was very charismatic. He, you know, he sold a lot of tickets to his shows, and people were very fascinated by him. And Genet was one of those people that was very fascinated by him. And 
Genet, uh, upon studying hysteria himself, he started actually wondering if orgasms had anything to do with hysteria or not. And he started actually thinking, you know what? In my observations of these patients with hysteria, I don't think it has anything to do with orgasms. And clearly it doesn't have anything to do with the uterus, just like a lot of my predecessors have already said. It has to do with the brain. But he started that the big thing that he did is he asserted that hysteria was caused by trauma. Boom. Nuclear bomb goes off. Nuclear bomb goes off in psychology and in the world. We have four, almost 4,000 years of silliness about hysteria. And Janae comes along and says, you know what? Hysteria has nothing to do with uterus, nothing to do with even sexuality, nothing to do with, you know, like Charcot believes it has to do with some sort of hereditary thing. It has to do with being traumatized. Maybe you were sexually traumatized, but maybe you're physically traumatized. You were mistreated and you have these memories of those traumas. And that's what leads to hysteria. This is a huge moment. It's like, it's like, um, it's like Einstein and the theory of relativity for someone in the late 1800s with almost, you know, no prior discussion of this to come out and say trauma causes psychological problems is such a huge notion. And in some ways, in 2016, we're still trying to learn what Janae was trying to tell us. <laughs> there are many people today in our field that do not appreciate the role that trauma plays in our psychology and in, and in the various presenting symptoms that people bring into therapy. But anyway, so again, these unexplainable symptoms that are usually within hysteria are not due to a wandering uterus. They're not due to a lack of orgasm or a lack of being pregnant, as has been believed for thousands of years. And this condition is not a universal trait for all women. In fact, this condition has nothing to do with gender at all. It's just uh, one of the ways for the mind to deal with painful memories by converting that internal pain into a bodily symptom of some, of some sort. It's genius, and we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Pierre Genet. He's an awesome dude. So Genet uh, laid, who was heavily influenced by Charcot, Genet laid the groundwork for Freud, for Breuer, and for Jung, who all cited Genet as a major influence. Now, Freud would later distance himself from Genet because he wanted people to think that he himself came up with all those ideas. But it seems clear to me that Freud got this idea of trauma and the memories affecting, you know, creating these psychological issues such as hysteria. It seems pretty clear to me that Freud did not invent that himself and that actually Genet did. 
So in, in, in some ways, you could say that uh, the real founder of psychotherapy is not Freud, but Genet. But, you know, it's always hard to delineate that sort of thing. Okay. It's important to know uh, also that in the 1800s, hysteria was a fad diagnosis, similar to the way autism spectrum is a fad diagnosis today, or ADHD is a fad diagnosis, or bipolar. These are all fad diagnoses in that people just start seeing it everywhere suddenly. And people are very fascinated by these, you know, the DSM has hundreds of diagnoses, but for some reason, autism, ADHD, and bipolar are just extremely fascinating to people <laughs> these days, um, which is great. Research is great, but there's a lot of other disorders like histrionic that are completely ignored. So in the 1800s, suddenly physicians were seeing hysteria everywhere because it was, you know, it was super faddish. And Charcot, who, you know, in France was talking a lot about hysteria, he, he was the one who perhaps made it into a fad. So, okay, let's get back to the 1870s. So we went a little bit forward into Pierre Genet. Let's go back. We're back in Paris. Charcot is inviting hundreds of people each week into the hospital where he displays his hysterical patients for everyone to gawk at. Well, one of the audience members was Sigmund Freud, who was young at the time, in his late 20s. Freud was a little aimless at the time. He was looking for something to give his life direction. He didn't know what he was going to do with his career. And when Freud met Charcot, he became fascinated with Charcot and his work. As a result, Freud became one of Charcot's students from 1885 to 1886, similar to Pierre Genet. So Pierre Genet and Sigmund Freud were both students of Charcot. And uh, through this, this uh, being a student, he dedicated himself to studying hysteria and learning how to treat it. Soon after that, just a few years later, in 1889, Freud published his second work, and perhaps his seminal, initial seminal work, Studies of Hysteria. So his, his, his famous first, you know, second book, but a lot of people don't remember his first publication. Most people point to Studies on Hysteria to be his first big publication. He wrote it with his colleague, Joseph Breuer. As I mentioned earlier, Freud was heavily influenced by his classmate, Pierre Genet, who came, with, came up with the idea that trauma causes hysteria. Freud agreed with this notion and asserted that hysteria was caused by childhood sexual trauma. He stated, here's a quote, I therefore put forward the thesis that at the bottom of every case of hysteria, there are one or more occurrences of premature sexual experiences, occurrences which belong to the earliest years of childhood, but which can be reproduced through the work of psychoanalysis in spite of the intervening decades, unquote. This is also genius. And so much of what came later from Freud and, and the neo-Freudians would obscure this wonderful, wonderful statement and assertion that he was making early, you know, he 
early he was he was on it he knew it it wasn't you know later he would screw it all up but let me just say this it's just it's so true today quote i therefore put forward the thesis that at the bottom of every case of hysteria there are one or more occurrences of premature sexual experiences unquote so you know it's just such a a cool thing to see freud come up with that it's just great of course he was heavily influenced by Genet, but he articulated it very well and he also added uh how to treat it which was very important he worked very close with Breuer, who was who was older than Freud at the time, and perhaps his mentor. Uh, but anyway, so Breuer was working with his patient Anna O or Bertha Pappenheim. Uh, Anna O was her her you know her pen. I don't know what you call it her alias. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so Breuer, who was Freud's uh, co colleague, uh, Bertha Pappenheim was being treated by Breuer. Bertha was 21 years old. She was, her father was dying and then did die. And she was very stressed out about that. And so she had a lot of psychological symptoms related to the grief and the loss of, of her father. And as she was being treated by Breuer, she discovered that when Breuer asked her questions about her life and about her symptoms and about her traumas, uh, later on, Bertha found that she had less hysteria symptoms and she called it chimney sweeping or sweeping the dust out of her mind by, by Breuer asking questions and listening to Bertha talk about her troubles. It actually reduced her troubles. And so they called it, you know, talk therapy. And this was a very novel idea and something that had not been considered uh, in the professional world, in the Western world anyway, prior to this moment. This idea that just talking about your troubles actually reduces your symptoms was crazy talk to people back then, and to some extent crazy talk to people today. But anyway, she suffered from the normal list of, uh, you know, the wide-ranging list of hysterical symptoms. And let me just read them all off just to reacquaint you with just how strange this disorder hysteria is. She suffered from paralysis, from hallucinations, from passing out, from a nervous cough. She, would have, she had a nervous cough. She had speech problems. She was suicidal. She had mood swings. She refused to eat. And... She had paralysis in the right arm and the neck. So this is, you know, when you just add all, I just want to say these again, because they're, who would consider these to be under one umbrella? You have someone passing out, which is concerning, right? Um, a nervous cough, a nervous cough. So like a tick or something. You have speech problems. So... What's up with that? You're suicidal. Okay. You have mood swings. Okay. Refuse to eat. Okay. Those are all in the same kind of depressive category. You have hallucination, hallucinations. Okay. Maybe you're looking at a, some sort of affective related to, you know, hallucination. And you have paralysis in the right arm and the neck. 
Okay, so that's it. So you have passing out, you have paralysis, you have speech problems, and then you have all these, you know. So that that's that was just one diagnosis called hysteria. So Freud and Breuer wrote about th- their treatment of hysteria uh, with Bertha Pappenheim in their in their book um, studies on hysteria. And they wrote about how their treatment involved instructing the patient to remember and talk about the traumatic event while feeling the same emotion that they felt during the traumatic event. So this is another boom moment, okay, for the world. That when you experience trauma, you later develop a bunch of possible psychological problems that don't respond to normal medical treatments. So instead, you instruct the patient to remember the trauma, to talk about the trauma, and to feel the same emotion that they felt during the traumatic event. This is exactly the sort of therapy that cutting-edge trauma therapists do today. And Freud and Breuer came upon this and discovered this thing And it's just, you know, it's one of those moments. Now, again, like I said, later Freud would screw up this whole thing, but I'll get into more of that later. But he started out with a genius idea, and today we're still trying to figure it out. Okay. So the way that Freud conceptualized this was that as the the client talks about the trauma with the psychoanalyst, it would release the emotional energy and cure the patient of the hysteria. And if the memory was defensively repressed or defensively forgotten, Freud would use hypnosis. He would use hypnosis to draw out the traumatic memory. And one might consider that similar to EMDR or other kind of relaxation exposure therapies. Freud's patients talked about being sexually abused by their family members or raped by a friend or other such traumas. And as, and as Freud's patients talked about being sexually abused by their parents or raped by a friend, and Freud listened, they found that the patient's hysterical symptoms reduced over time, which was you know quite a finding. And it should be noted that until about 1905, uh, Freud, his work was primarily focused on hysteria. So for the for the beginning of Freud's time, uh, on you know as a professional, you know perhaps 10, 15 years or something, he was he was very much just focused on hysteria. Now, so later, after Freud had the, Freud had this genius. Um, treatment uh, and conceptualization of hysteria. He would later abandon this whole trauma theory. He believed instead that people repressed their sexual and aggressive urges that were unacceptable in proper society. So when people had hysteria, it's it's not that they were sexually abused. It's that they actually want to have sexual gratification in a bunch of strange ways and they can't do that because it's not acceptable in proper society. And so that's why they have hysteria. 
So this repression of a, of the drive to have sex and the suppression of the aggression that people have, this was the result of hysteria. And so the treatment would not involve talking about your past traumas, but involved helping the patient realize that they have these repressed urges and perhaps should express them in some way, shape, or form. So this is quite a tragedy because, you know, when Freud said something, everyone just took it as gospel. And so as Freud rejected his own wonderful theory, so did everybody else. I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people did. Incidentally, uh, penis envy came along around this time, and Freud developed his idea of penis envy while observing hysterical women. He thought that hysterical women were using their over-emotionality and their sexuality to get the penis. You know, the idea was that all women suffered from penis envy, and so some women would develop hysteria as a way of trying to get at that penis to possess it themselves. Okay, so it's important to know that although Freud started the ball rolling with psychoanalysis, there were many post-Freudian people, that's a bad way of putting it, There's, there, there are a lot of psychoanalysts that followed Freud who were acolytes or disciples of Freud, but had different points of view. So it's always hard to know exactly what one means when they say psychoanalysis or psychodynamic theory, because there's just so many different divergent ideas. But in general, uh, as the 20th century began and, you know, you got the, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, these later Freudians would conceptualize hysteria as being a result of reawakened conflicts associated with the Oedipal phase of development. And, you know, it, it gets pretty weird because they use a lot of strange metaphors and sometimes it's, and, and they often will disagree, but a very basic example of this edible phase problem is, and this is just something I came up with, is say you have an infant girl, okay? And naturally this infant girl, she needs her mother. But her mother doesn't meet her needs for whatever reason. She's not the best attentive mother. And so the mother doesn't meet her needs to feel safe, to be nourished, and to be nourished and to feel like she's worth something. So you have this infant girl who is anxious, doesn't, isn't getting enough love and attention, and doesn't feel as though she has a, you know, a sense of self-esteem appropriate to her age. And so she's very disappointed with her mother. And as she enters the Oedipal phase, she, where you start to break away from your mother and start going to being attached with your father, as she enters this Oedipal phase, she invests all of her emotional energy into getting attention from her father because she has all this built-up tension around needing love and needing attention. And as she transitions to her father, suddenly, you know, the floodgates open and she just needs like tons of energy from, from him. And at the same time, she's fairly ambivalent about her mother. She's still disappointed in her. She, she loves her and wants to connect with her, but 
she is disappointed with her mom. And as this child remains stuck in the Oedipal phase, she she sees males as strong and desirable, and she sees women, including herself, as disappointing and weak. And she unconsciously hates men for having power over her, so she uses she eventually, as an adult, uses sexuality to control men. And as a result, she doesn't enjoy sex, since sex for her is used as a tool and is not a mutually satisfying activity. So this is just a basic example. So again, just the broad strokes. You have a, a infant ch- child who is not getting her needs met from her mom as she starts to transition her attachment to the father. She is rewarded because the father actually is able to give her some of her needs. And so all of her energy goes into attracting love and attention from a man, from an older man, by the way, who has a lot of power. And she's resentful of the fact that her mother never gave her any love And she's also kind of resentful to her father because her father holds so much power over her and she isn't, she's not comfortable with that. And so as she grows up, she can, as a female herself, and uh, since her mother was such a bad mother, she considers herself to be as an adult, a bad person. She's empty on the inside, very low self-esteem. And she is stuck in this Oedipal phase where she believes that men have all the resources that she needs to survive it, you know, emotionally and physically. And so she spends all of her time in this complex of trying to garner the attention of, of all men in particular, some particular men who seem to have a lot of power. And so this is the, conceptualization within psychoanalysis regarding the Oedipal phase. All right. Even though Genet and Freud were overturning millennia of silliness, you know, going back to the Egyptians and Greeks. So even though Genet and Freud were like, no, 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 no. Come on, peeps. It has nothing to do with the uterus or orgasm. It has to do with trauma We've seen it. We've seen it firsthand. So even though Janet and Freud were and influenced by Charcot were overturning all this stuff, the rest of the society was still following the ancient Greek and to some extent the ancient Egyptian tradition. For example, during this time, most Western women carried a bottle of smelling salts in their handbag. It was believed that when they became emotional you know, anxious or sad or shocked or something, their uterus would wander upwards and they would become lightheaded and maybe faint. So they would use the smelling salts in their nose to push the uterus away from their head and back to their vagina. And once their uterus was back downstairs, it was believed that they wouldn't faint and their emotions would become more controllable. So up until the 20th century, the 1900s, people still believed in this ancient theory about the uterus moving around, and they still treated hysteria by putting bad-smelling things in people's faces. (laughs) I mean, mean, you know, remember that whole thing about, like, putting nice-smelling things by the vagina and putting, you know, the poo of men 
by the woman's vagina and and uh, you know bad smelling things by the nose it's it's like that tradition you know went all the way you've you've all seen smelling salts right you know? now perhaps smelling salts themselves emerged from a different sort of scientific tradition or something but it was it was all within this hysteria women are too emotional uterus moving around bad somatic things happening as a result of over emotionality like passing out it's just uh crazy when you start drawing all the dots during world war one and world war two soldiers were being diagnosed with hysteria this is very interesting to me i didn't know this usually uh because they were uh, suffering from conversion disorder. I've done an episode on conversion disorder. Essentially, you manifest some psychological problem as a bodily symptom, like you're, you know, you have PTSD, but because you don't have a way of processing that, your your arm goes numb or you go blind or something because you're suffering on the inside. So World War One, World War Two uh, soldiers, we didn't have the diagnosis of of PTSD. There was shell shock. There was other diagnoses, but it wasn't well understood, and there wasn't a lot of it wasn't being uh, propagated through the medical uh, and psychiatric community. And so they were still using hysteria as a label for soldiers who were exhibiting symptoms coming back from the war or during the war. For instance, one study found that 57%, 57% of patients admitted in one hospital during World War II were diagnosed with hysteria. This is crazy. So just one hospital, not the entire World War II veteran community, but just one hospital. But they did a study and they found that 50, 57% of the patients who were being admitted to the hospital were being diagnosed with hysteria. So, you know, just think about veterans or think about soldiers and they're coming to the hospital for various different reasons. Some of them are uh, probably have PTSD and some of them are depressed and some of them are, have grief and some of them are, are anxious and some of them are, well, all of them are being labeled as hysteria as, as hysterical or histrionic. And it's just so interesting the way that these labels get changed over time. Because if, if, I'm guessing today that a very small percentage of soldiers coming into the hospital are diagnosed with histrionic or hysteria or whatever, because that's just not the way that we see things anymore. It's just interesting. And it makes you wonder in another 50 years how we'll be seeing things even differently. Also, it is important to note the non-Freudian treatments that were happening at the time. So the, the non-talk therapy treatments. For example, some physicians would remove the uterus. As I talked about earlier about the clitoris being removed well into the 1940s, well, they were also removing the uterus. So you might have a woman who was, again, overly emotional or having some sort of conversion disorder or some dissociative disorder. And as a treatment for that, they would remove the uterus, which is terrible. It's a, you know, the uterus is a very useful organ for a number of reasons, not only reproduction, but also for hormones and various other things. And to just, to just take it out. Yeah. Just, you know, just take that out. 
um, that'll fix everything. I'm sure it did nothing. Okay. Well, I'm sure it did something, you know, would affect their balance uh, hormonally and and psychologically quite a bit. Anyway, also during this time in Victorian England and, you know, the Freudian times, physicians were treating hysteria by manually stimulating women to orgasm, just as they have been for centuries. Um, Some people don't know this. Some people do because there's been a popular, you know, movie made about this and other articles written about it because people love to talk about this sort of thing. But movie um, called Hysteria with Maggie Gyllenhaal from 2011. From what I understand, I've never seen the movie, but from what I understand, there's a lot of falsehoods uh, that the movie presents. But I think the broad strokes, excuse the pun, are uh, similar to history. So basically, you have a lot of rich women in England at the time. You know, England was the superpower during this time. They had colonies all over the world. They controlled trade. So they were the richies. And they had a lot of rich women living living in England. And they were being diagnosed with hysteria. And they were going to their doctor. And their doctor was saying, okay, you suffer from hysteria. You, you know, are you having emotional problems? Well, hysteria. Oh, are you having memory problems? Hysteria. Are you having some sort of weird body ache, headaches, or some sort of weird pain that we can't figure out what it's from? Okay, you have hysteria. And the treatment for that, since, you know, medicine wasn't what it was, what it is today, they're like, okay, well, you know, it's hysteria, and the treatment for that is orgasms. And God forbid that you just masturbate because that's actually a sin and we can't expect your husbands to give you orgasms because I'm guessing there wasn't a lot of sex education about foreplay and whatnot. And so it fell to the doctors because there were no longer midwives providing the main medical help for women. It was now physicians, male physicians. And so these male physicians were left having to give all these housewives orgasms by by fingering them, for lack of a better verb. And so the physicians were essentially having, you know, third base sex with all these women. And they didn't like it because it actually was very tiresome to them, you know. Just think, yeah, average woman probably takes, you know, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, or I don't know. But I'm sure you get some some half an hour women in there at times, or 45-minute women in there sometimes. You know, your hand, if that's all you're going to do all day long, you're going to be you're gonna be tired. Uh, so they didn't like it because of that, but they loved it because they made a ton of money from these rich women. So, you know, because they could charge quite a bit for this because it's pretty specialized uh, treatment. It takes a long time. And so they could charge a lot. So they're they're making a ton of money. Essentially, according to today's uh, definitions, they were sex workers. and But their hands were, uh, you know, cramping up by the end of the day. And so the, these physicians started to uh, invent or people started inventing for them different devices, mechanical devices that could be used to bring these Victorian ladies to orgasm. 
So they would use water massagers, basically, you know, the equivalent of a, of a, you know, what do you call those shower head things that you can hold, you know, that you can pull down a shower massager thing. They would plenty of women today use that for masturbation and somehow they figured this one out. And so the doctors would use this one. The problem with the water massager is that it was extremely expensive apparently because you, it was a large mechanical device because you couldn't just use the, uh, apparently the water supplied wasn't as forceful as it is today or, you know, and so you had to, I think you had to use some sort of pump or something. And so it was a pretty large device and you just got to think like all the water everywhere and the drain and, you know, it's just, it was probably fairly involved process. And from what I understand, they would, they would shoot the water at them from a fair distance. It wasn't just like right up against, you know, it was like, you know, a few feet away. (laughs) So anyway, so, but you know, some people use that. There were steam powered devices, you know, we're talking about the 1800s, early 1900s. They don't have combustion engines yet. And so steam power was the, you know, mechanical engine of the time. And so, they would use steam-powered vibration device, you know, vibrators. <laughs> and and I just think it's funny to think about, you know, because the steam-powered devices we know today are locomotives or trains. There were other steam-powered devices at the time, you know, like you had boats and you had um, cotton gins. I think those were, those were um, steam-powered. But, you know, you, you think of all the – because you have to burn wood and coal – to get to to boil a big boiler of water and you've got to feed it cold and you've got to put more water in and then it creates steam and then the steam will 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 push some kind of um turbine and then that turbine is is transit you know like there's some sort of drive train or something that goes to a vibrator and then that then at the end of that line that drive train is it it vibrates and so I'm just imagining these physicians. It's like, oh, okay, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Anderson is here. Okay, you know, s- you know, start up the huge uh, steam-powered vibrator. You know, feed it coal. It, it's got to be hotter, sir. <laughs> and you know, and toot toot, and just and you know, and he's got that thing in her, and you know. <laughs> I got again, just wish I had a video of this, not, you know, because of that reason, but just, I would just, I just want to see how this, how big this thing and how loud it was. And, you know, just, it's a funny picture. Um, but when someone finally invented the electrical vibrator, it was so much better because you had a relatively small device that again wasn't steam powered and didn't require lots of water like the water massagers did and it was just a simple electronic device some of them were battery powered and they weren't small they because back then they couldn't make a vibrator the way they do today you know it wasn't something you could take on the airplane with you it was you know you know just think about how small cell phones are now well cell phones in the past were quite large well the first 
the first uh, vib- electric vibrators were <clears throat> also quite large, but you know, they were much easier to use. I'm guessing they weren't as loud. I'm guessing they were loud, but not as loud. It's like a steam powered thing. But anyway, so, and there was an assortment of various devices, you know, it was the time of the industrial revolution. And I I think the world was filled with inventors trying various different things because, you know, they, no one knew what would be the best design that people would land on eventually. And so if you just Google uh, Victorian era vibrators, you'll, or, you know, orgasm machines, you'll get a lot of different types of uh, machines. So I just want to pause here in the history and just list the symptoms that were associated with hysteria during the late 1800s and early 1900s. Because I just want to point out how many symptoms were associated with hysteria at the time. And this, this has been something that's always sort of boggled me. Whenever people talk about hysteria, I was always like, what, what exactly is hysteria? So in a nutshell, hysteria was used as a medical diagnosis for women who were, being, who, who were seen as being overly emotional and who expressed multiple somatic or bodily complaints for which physicians couldn't find any medical basis. So that's the general umbrella description. Very emotional, too emotional, and had various different bodily complaints that doctors couldn't figure out. And I just find this to be laughable because, you know, in the 1600s, what could a physician explain at the time? I'm guessing the vast majority of things that uh, someone could suffer from, physicians in the 1600s, or even the 1800s for that matter, knew very little about what was going on. And so it's just, no wonder they saw so many people as hysterical. And and to me, it's just blaming the victim. You know, you have someone who's suffering from something. It's sort of like the way chronic fatigue syndrome or lupus or these kinds of current diagnoses are similar. I, I think there's a kind of a through line from hysteria to chronic fatigue syndrome. Again, mostly women, I think, uh, don't quote me on that, but they will often be seen as annoying, overly, overly emotional and bothersome to physicians. And the fact is, is that now, you know, some people, obviously the chronic fatigue is psychogenic and for some people they might be making it up, but there's probably a, a fair amount of percent, fair percentage of people that, suffer from chronic fatigue who are, you know, legitimate, let's just say. And they're often rejected within the medical community. I don't have any data in front of me. I'm just sort of talking out of my ass. But anyway, okay. So specific symptoms that were associated with hysteria at the time were things like conversions, like I was talking about before, like psychogenic paralysis or psychogenic blindness or psychogenic deafness or you know, whatever, any kind of bodily problem that has a psychological uh, genesis. Also, various somatic complaints like pain in, in parts of the body or numbness, um, psychogenic, psychogenic numbness, tremors were associated, were, you know, were, so, were a symptom of hysteria, muscle spasms. Okay, so that's in one kind of category. Now we're going to another kind of category, irritability. So just being irritable was a symptom of hysteria. 
being bothersome to other people. So just being just being annoying as a woman to other people was a symptom of hysteria. Vomiting, hiccuping, hiccuping. You know, if you hiccup a lot, you're hysterical. <laughs> Anx, anxious, if you if you're anxious, if you have anxiety, depression, that's hysterical. Excessive sexual desire. Well, boy, something must be wrong with her if she wants sex a lot, so she's hysterical. Erotic fantasies. So if a woman has erotic fantasies, that could be an indication of hysteria. Wetness between the leg. Wetness between the legs. Wetness between the legs. That's a symptom of hysteria. Fluid retention. Fluid retention. Hallucinations. Feeling uh, a feeling of heaviness in the lower abdomen. That's a weird one. Sounds like you have to go number two. Multiple personalities. Fugue states, if you're familiar with dissociative fugue states. Sleepwalking and amnesia or memory loss of some kind. So, again, I'm just going to rattle these off. And just imagine one diagnosis that is applied to, so someone comes in with all of these symptoms and they go, oh yeah, classic hysteria. Okay. So conversions like psychogenic paralysis, blindness, deafness, various somatic, somatic complaints like pain in the body. You have psychogenic numbness, tremors, muscle spasms, irritability, being bothersome to others, vomiting, hiccuping, anxiety, depression, excessive sexual desire, excessive erotic fantasies, wetness between the legs, fluid retention, hallucinations, feeling heaviness in the lower abdomen, multiple personalities, fugue states, sleepwalking, and amnesia. Now, when you look at this through the Pierre Genet Freudian lens, it makes a lot of sense that they would say that they actually would find that a lot of these patients had been abused perhaps sexually. You know, when you're traumatized as a child, you're going to have a lot of uh, psychological issues as a result. Things like conversions and depression and anxiety. You might even vomit at times because you're, uh, you know, you're triggered. Something reminds you of being raped as a child. And so you, your stomach seizes up and you, and you vomit. You're going to get irritable sometimes because you're stressed out about the symptoms you have as an adult. You might have an, uh, interesting relationship with sex. You might have a hard time navigating sex because you were perhaps sexually abused. You might have hallucinations because you're so depressed and, or you might be seeing things, you know, flashbacks, for instance, to when you have PTSD, it's, it's a symptom of having flashbacks to, you know, the things that have happened before. Fugue states or dissociation. Sleepwalking is a little interesting. I mean, people tend to sleepwalk when, their sleep is being disrupted a lot. Uh, so, you know, we could see that happening to someone. And then amnesia or, you know, memory loss. If, you know, people who suffer from dissociation as a result of being traumatized, when they're triggered, even minorly, they will dissociate and their body will act normally, but they won't remember any of it. Or if, or if they have dissociative identity disorder, a different altar will take over and then another altar the next day won't remember what happened. And so 
So it, it makes a lot of sense when, so just looking at the symptoms as it is, it's like, wow, what a hodgepodge. But when you think about all of these people potentially having been traumatized, particularly sexually traumatized as a child, it actually starts to make sense that they would see this as one disorder. But it is a little funny that we would call it all one thing. You know, it's like, imagine if we had a condition called, you know, I don't know, blah, blah disorder or something. And it consisted of, you know, like flu-like symptoms and pain um, in your pinky toe and uh, sudden outbursts into song and uh, switching to a different political party uh, and random and uncalled for erections. <laughs> you know, just imagine if we had some medical diagnosis that included all those things. It's just interesting to see that we had a you know quite a hodgepodge of symptoms in one diagnosis. Okay, so now we're in the twentieth century, right? We're after Genet, we're after Freud, we're well after the Greeks and well after the Egyptians. Over time, through the 20th century, hysteria or histrionic personality disorder became separated into various mental disorders. Instead of having just one disorder that include many different symptoms, like I talked about before, the psychological field, psychiatric field, decided to develop several smaller diagnoses that had limited criteria. So the original hysteria and histrionic personality disorder has been separated into several different diagnoses, such as dissociative identity disorder, dissociative fugue, dissociative amnesia, amnesia, depersonalization, conversion, somatic disorders, various different somatic disorders, hypochondriasis, or you know, being hypochondriac, pain disorder, body dysmorphia, histrionic personality disorder. So this is interesting to point out. Um, and, and other diagnoses like depression, anxiety, borderline, and organic brain disorders. So when we talk about if 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 Anna if Anna O or Bertha Pappenheim were to come into an office today, even though Freud and Breuer said, "Oh, classic hysteria," today she might get a number of different disorders instead of just history hysteria. So throughout the early 1900s, the Freudian notion of hysteria prevailed, as did most everything that Freud said. So throughout the early 1900s, well into the 50s and 60s, the vast majority of psychiatrists and psychologists were Freudians. And in the 1968 uh, DSM, DSM DSM-2, so this is the second edition of the Diagnostic Statistic statistical manual, the DSM-2. It was published in 1968, and it included a new diagnosis, which was hysterical personality or histrionic personality disorder. So in the DSM-2, the original the original hysterical slash histrionic label was called hysterical personality or histrionic personality disorder. The DSM-2 defined this concept as follows someone who is excitable, someone who has emotional instability, someone who overreacts, someone who is prone to self-dramatization, 
or, you know, being dramatic. And this self-dramatization is always attention-seeking and often seductive, whether or not the patient is aware of its purpose. And histrionic people are immature, self-centered, they're often vain, and they're often dependent on others. So this very early psychoanalytic you know, conceptualization of hysteria or histrionic is, is very, pretty, very close to the way it's conceived of today, uh, which, which is interesting. Uh, for some people, they might say like, wow, it should be updated. But, you know, I would say that they had a pretty good grasp on this personality back then, in my opinion. Okay, then in 1980, we have the DSM-3, and it described histrionic personality disorder in a way that's perhaps more familiar to clinicians today. So, criterion A, behavior that is overly dramatic, reactive, and intensely expressed, as indicated by at least three of the following. So again, behavior that is overly dramatic, reactive, and intensely expressed, as indicated by at least three of the following. Self-dramatization, incessant drawing of attention to oneself, craving for activity and excitement, overreaction to minor events, or irrational angry outbursts or tantrums. Criterion B says... Characteristic disturbance in interpersonal relationships as indicated by at least two of the following. And there are five. Perceived by others as shallow and lacking genuineness, even if superficially warm and charming. So again, even if the person is, is seemingly warm and charming on, in a superficial way, most people around them perceive them as being quite shallow and lacking genuineness. Number two, egocentric, self-indulgent, and inconsiderate of others. Three, vain and demanding. Four, dependent, helpless, constantly seeking reassurance. And five, prone to manipulative, suicidal threats, gestures, and attempts. So this is all paraphrased from DSM-3, but clinicians actually complained about this last criterion because it basically meant that many borderline patients would also fit the criteria for histrionic, which would confuse things. So in the DSM-3R, the revised version of DSM-3, they actually dropped the uh, final criterion from the list. And I find this always to be a little funny because early conceptualizations of borderline seems to me, or maybe in the 80s, or I don't know, seems, and I think today too, is that it's basically applied to people who self-injure and who will have a lot of suicidal threats over time. And to me, if you listen to the show, I don't conceptualize borderline as that at all. Certainly borderline personality people will self-injure because they're suffering quite a bit and or they might have suicidal gestures because again they're suffering quite a bit but i don't consider self-injury and suicidal threats to be a central feature of borderline to me the central feature of borderline is sensitivity to rejection and abandonment 
And similar to that histrionic personality disorder, the central feature is drawing attention to oneself defensively because you feel terrible on the inside. And they lack a self, and so they don't tend to know who they are, and they don't tend to have a personality. So you know how I was saying that hysteria dominated our profession you know, throughout the early part of our field, you know, in the, particularly in the 1900s when you see, uh, or late 1800s, uh, hysteria was extremely a fad diagnosis. Well, that really continued throughout the 1900s and into the 1980s even. For example, in the 1980s, studies found that up to 19% of the U.S. population met the criteria. So I just want to repeat this right now. So in the 1980s, we're working off the DSM-3 diagnostic criteria, which is pretty close to the current diagnostic criteria. And, you know, various studies found that up to 19%, 19%, one out of five people, and you can only do adults. So, you know, really we're pr probably talking about uh, one out of every three adults of the U.S. population met criteria for histrionic personality disorder. That is a, that, that's, you know, that's crazy. Now, what that probably means is that the psychiatric and psychological and psychotherapeutic community in the 1980s was just being extremely liberal with their interpretation of the data as it pertained to the histrionic personality disorder criteria. So, uh, it's probably not true that people were more hysterical in the 80s. <laughs> it's just not likely. Another study found that 40% of people admitted to an inpatient unit met criteria for hysteria. So it's just interesting to, to think about not that long ago, just 30 years ago, our field was diagnosing so many more people with histrionic personality disorder. And it's so different from today. I mean, I've almost never heard anyone being diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder today. It's very rare that I hear another clinician talking about this. In fact, I would say most clinicians, most of my colleagues, don't even know what the criteria are. You know, they have probably have a vague sense of histrionic, but not, you know, they don't have an intimate knowledge of it. For example, according to current studies that, you know, in the 2016, the prevalence, the prevalence of histrionic personality disorder ranges from 1 to 3%. So that's much lower than 19%, right? So very similar uh, criteria in the 1980s, 19%, and in 2016, 3%, up to 3% of the population. So people are being much more strict when it comes to the uh, interpretation of this diagnosis. And you just have to think, why? You know, why, why is this now? So are, are, are we less dramatic now? I would highly doubt that. We just probably change our culture. We just see this diagnosis differently, and uh, we will likely see histrionic personality disorder differently in the future as well. So this brings us up to the modern day, DSM-5, published in, I think, 2013, just before it was published. So this is very interesting. Just before DSM-5 was published. So as we were 
you know, in the in the years preceding DSM five being published, there was a whole task force, you know, of various different professions related to the field of of psychology and psych and psychiatry and psychotherapy from around the world were gathered together and they, you know, were tasked with hashing out the chapter on personality disorders, which is very particular. And there's often a lot of debate around it. And there was extreme fighting because some people wanted to just to keep it exactly the same as DSM-4. They're just like, you know, it's a good system. We like it. We have a lot of uh, research that depends on consistency. So it's important to know that th there's a lot of politics in the DSM. You know, for instance, if if histrionic is removed, which is what a lot of people wanted to do, they just wanted to get rid of it, then there are certain professionals in our field who have dedicated their entire career or a good portion of their career to researching and publishing books and articles and giving talks on histrionic personality disorder. So if if we remove it from the DSM, then it essentially means that all of their research and all of their knowledge and all of their expertise is irrelevant. It's just like you're just wiped off the face of the professional map and you have to like start over with some other uh, disorder or something as being your specialty. And so there's a lot of things like that or just someone who's really interested in and, you know, is known for talking about personality disorders if you get rid of personality disorders, which was also something they wanted to do, they just wanted to get rid of them altogether, then again, your work is 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 done. Plus, there's a lot of people who just want their uh, conception of human beings to be legitimized by the DSM. To me, the DSM is just another book that a, that a small group of people published. And if in it, uh, if, if you're ideas of the universe don't reside within the DSM, which it's not likely to, then, you know, just take the DSM with a grain of salt and just say, well, you know, that's what those publishers decided to write. Well, you know, there's other books by other publishers and, you know, you don't need to. Now the DSM is what we have to use when we're diagnosing people officially speaking, when we're talking to insurance companies, but outside of that there's, or research, I suppose, but outside of that, you don't really need it. And there's plenty of diagnoses that aren't in the DSM that are researched things like, I think sexual compulsion. And I don't think that's in the DSM and certainly psychopathy that's not in the DSM. And so, you know, you don't need the DSM, but anyway, so there's this big task force and they were getting together in the two thousands and they're trying to figure out what to do with the personality disorder chapter and they there's a there's a pretty strong you know vocal group of of people in this debate that wanted to replace personality disorders with character dimensions so instead of having i don't know something like 10 or 12 different personality disorders they just wanted to make a chapter that had different dimensions like empathy or emotional instability and these kinds of things so in other words, you would never die, you know, according to these people, and they almost won, they lost, but they almost won. We would never diagnose people with histrionic. We would say this person is low on empathy and high on emotional instability and low on this other dimension and medium on this other dimension. And this way, you don't have to worry about these discrete labels. You have these, these, these dimensional descriptors. And I actually think this system would be pretty cool because it's much more, 
easily understood. When you say to someone borderline or histrionic or antisocial or narcissistic, sometimes it's confusing. It's like, well, I don't really, what, you know, what's histrionic again? But if you said, oh, this person has low empathy, you know, low emotional instability, high psych, you know, high psychopathy or whatever, you know, you just list the personality traits. People are like, oh, okay, I get that. So I don't know. I, I would have liked that. I still kind of like the labels that we have because I don't know, it's just sort of my world, but, um, uh, another group of people. So you had the people who wanted to keep the DSM the same. You had the people who wanted to completely eradicate personality disorders in general and just have these character dimensions. And then you had this, these other group, this other group of people who just wanted to lump all of cluster B personality disorders into one category with different subcategories, which I kind of like too. So cluster B is narcissistic, borderline, histrionic, and antisocial. And so they wanted, because these, these four diagnoses are clumped into cluster B because they're actually quite similar. And a lot of people, for instance, who get diagnosed with borderline, uh, if you sent them to another uh, clinician, they, they might see narcissistic. You send them to another person, they might see histrionic. You send them to another person, they might see antisocial. Because there's a lot of a lot of overlap, and it depends on your interpretation of the data, which can be very subjective. And so they wanted to lump all of cluster B into one, like just call it, you know, cluster B a disorder, a personality disorder. And then you would have a narcissistic type or a borderline type or a histrionic type or an antisocial type, which I, I think I kind of like that. But anyway, in the end, after all this fighting and all these great ideas and all this research, there's a ton of research, lots of dollars, lots of grants, lots of effort, lots of, Lots of hateful words back and forth. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of debate, a lot of angry debate. They pretty much just went with the exact same system from DSM four. <laughs> so, so that's why I think in DSM six, which God knows when that'll come out, probably another you know ten, fifteen years, twenty years or something. My guess is this histrionic will be gone, and here here's here's why I think it'll be gone. Well, for the the main reason is because. For whatever reason, histrionic has fallen out of favor in our field. There's very few people who seem to talk about it. There's a fair amount of talk about borderline. There's a fair amount of talk about narcissistic. There's a fair amount of talk about antisocial. There's not a lot of talk about histrionic. And um, so it just seems to be becoming less popular over the years. And there's a number of reasons why. And the first one is is that I think the most important one is is that histrionic is massively fucking sexist. <laughs> if it's one thing that you can know from, you know, that you will glean from the history of hysteria and histrionic is that my god, it is so sexist. Histrionic personality disorder is basically a description of a woman in the words of a sexist male cl clinician. Oh, she's so, you know, she's a nymphomaniac and she dresses like a slut and she's so overreactive and she's so fake. And, you know, it's basically if you just took a misogynistic psychiatrist and and had him describe uh, a female patient, you would probably get histrionic personality disorder. And so it, it's just interesting, you know, that that's that's the case. It has always been used uh, as a pejorative label for annoying and bothersome female patients, similar to borderline. So since the field, you know, for the past forever has been dominated by male clinicians, whenever there was an annoying or bothersome female patient, histrionic or borderline was used for that. 
And so in that way, it was used in a sexist manner. Histrionic personality disorder essentially pathologizes emotionality and traditional feminine traits. You know, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're having, you're having emotions, woman? You're, wait, you're having emotions? Well, you must be suffering from an overactive uterus. There must be something wrong with you that you have emotions. So, you know, it, it pathologizes femininity. Um, and throughout history, women have been oppressed and when they start to fight back against that oppression, there are a number of societal mechanisms to push them back down, right? One of which is control through psychiatry. And one tool in psychiatry has always been the label of hysteri hysteria or histrionic. So, you know, we live in a sexist world and have for quite some time. And psychiatry exists within that sexist culture. And psychiatry is used collectively as a tool to keep women down at times. And hysteria, you know, you could make a pretty strong argument that it was used as a societal tool to, to disempower women. You know, it's like they're upset about the fact that they have no rights and they're being treated like shit and they're being sexually harassed all the time. And they, oh, wait, they, so they have a lot of emotions about that. Well, it, they couldn't be legitimate emotions because who respects women? They must have a disorder and hysteria or histrionic personality disorder. You know, that must be it. Also, histrionic is likely a reaction to the fear of women's sexuality. When women exhibited their power through sexuality, it could be, you know, it was pathologized through hysteria and histrionic. Women probably did control men in the past with their you know, sexual stuff. <laughs> and that was threatening to men. And so they had to pathologize it in order to get control over that. So history, hysteria and histrionic, is just rife with sexism and terribleness. And so that's, I think, the main reason why histrionic has fallen out of favor. And it should, you know, it really should for that reason. Another reason why histrionic has fallen out of favor, I think, is because it's not very different from borderline or narcissistic or several other conditions that are in the DSM. There's a ton of research showing that histrionic is, is just not necessary since it overlaps with other personality disorders. We have sufficient labels, so we don't need this label. We don't need this, you know, one could say it's just a subcategory of borderline, and so there's really no reason to to have a dedicated label for this. Borderline has been uh, coined by Stern in 1938, but it didn't become widely used in our field until it was included in the DSM-3 in 1980. And as borderline personality sort of rose in popularity, histrionic declined. There just isn't much interest in histrionic as there is in borderline, for instance. If, you know, For me, you've heard me talk about borderline all the time. You've probably heard me talk about histrionic maybe never before today. And, you know, I reflect the, cult, the broader culture of the field. So as, as borderline became more popular, uh, people who presented with symptoms that were in the borderline histrionic category are just labeled as borderline and not histrionic. Whereas before, uh, before borderline was introduced uh, to uh, the DSM in, in 1980, most of them would just use histrionic. So, it you know, in 1970, if someone presented with borderline, 
the way I would see Borderland today, I would have, if I was a practice, if I was practicing in 1970, I would have labeled them histrionic. So it just has to do with like the introduction of borderline. Um, it's probably a more helpful label in a lot of ways. Um, and so uh, that's another reason why histrionic is falling out of favor. Also, psychoanalysis in general is just less popular now. And it's for, for some of you who are not in the field, it, it, you wouldn't know this, but talking about personality is, is to some extent strictly a psychoanalytic or psychodynamic practice. Cognitive therapists don't care about personality. Behavioral therapists don't care about personality. Systemic, family systemic therapists don't care about personality. Postmodern, brief therapies, collaborative therapies could care less about personality. The the only uh, humanistic psychologist, Rogers, you know, you know, all these people don't they don't necessarily care about personality. The the main school who even cares about personality is psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory, and they care about personality a lot. And as these psychoanalysis psychodynamic a theory becomes much less popular now than it used to be. So do the conceptualizations such as personality and personality disorders to a cognitive therapist. A personality disorder is, is ridiculous because to think that, and, and to a behaviorist, the same sort of thing, it's just ridiculous to think that you would have, you would have this conceptualization of a, of a personality. So, and, you know, there's, I'm using language here that people could debate. But my point is, is that the, you know, 50 years ago, the vast majority of, of psychotherapists were talking about personality and personality disorders and characterological disorders. Whereas today, it's, it's just not uh, as popular. And so all of the personality disorders are less popular and therefore histrionic um, even suffers even more because of that, because it's one of the personality disorders. And the last reason that I think histrionic is falling out of favor, according to me, is the history of the disorder does not make us look very good. I mean, the word histrionic comes from hysteria, which has a, a terrible, terrible history. Um, and it's being used as a catch-all you know, in the past for various different physical and mental conditions. So it's very confusing and it just kind of makes us look stupid. I mean, the, the original, the, the origin of the label hysteria is from ancient Egypt. You know, they believe that a woman's uterus was wandering around the body. You know, it's just embarrassing to the field. I think, you know, that we have this personality disorder that the origin of its name comes from a wandering uterus. Now, you know, hysteria was coined by the Greeks later on, but, but uh, yeah, so it's, you know, it's just embarrassing <laughs> in 2016 that we have the, you know, we've renamed disorders frequently. We used to have multiple personality disorder. It's now dissociative identity disorder. And we changed that because we didn't want the notion of multiple personalities to, because it wasn't accurate. It's, it, you have one personality, but you have alters. Um, we changed the name of manic depression to bipolar. Uh, that one I don't get. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I know I read the history on that one, 
but you know, we, we have a history of, of re, you know, manic depression and multiple personality disorder were extremely popular disorders in the DSM. And we didn't have any problem just dismantling that. And to this day, people have a hard time. You know, when you say dissociative identity disorder, even to some clinicians, they're like, huh, what's that one again? Um, and people still use the term manic depression. And so, you know, why would we hold on to histrionic? Why don't, why don't we call it something else? You know, like, I mean, one option, like I said, is just to make it a subtype of borderline. But um, other names that I thought of, I know someone who calls himself an attention slut. You know, he said, oh, my God, I'm such an attention slut. Well, you could call it attention slut disorder. <laughs> uh, not likely, but, you know, what do you, what do you know? Um, or the one, one name that I came up with was regressive personality disorder. I don't know. I don't really like that, but... I couldn't really come up with various, you know, attention personality disorder, lack of attention. I don't know, just some sort of attention, um, attention, neediness, personality disorder. Uh, there's so many different names we could put to it. And um, I, I think that uh, we should get rid of the, the hister within the DSM. I think it's embarrassing. So that's another reason why it's falling out of favor. However, in the past couple of years, there seems to be a gaining popularity in the psychoanalytic literature of hysteria and histrionic for some reason. So within, you know, good old psychoanalytic literature, there's, there's a fair amount of, of young writers and researchers who are, who are talking about histrionic personality disorder. For instance, in 2014, Renee Muller from the John Ho Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He wrote a journal article in which he analyzed 10 of his managers over the past 20 years. <laughs> he, his, you know, he's a, I think he's a psychiatrist, and he analyzed, he, he, analyzed, he psychoanalyzed, as the lay people might say, 10 of his managers, which I'm guessing are, he couldn't have had that many managers over the past 20 years. And he wrote a, an article and the, the, uh, it was published and he diagnosed these 10 managers, all of them as having strong histrionic inclinations, quote, quote unquote, strong histrionic in inclinations. He describes their behavior in detail. He basically claims that they were emotionally overreactive and hostile with him. He claims that they could not see the situation for what it was and they were seeing things through their emotions. I think it's hilarious that he wrote this article, and I think it's also hilarious that the journal was published, and it was published in The Humanist Psychologist. To me, it sounds like Mueller is just a dick, honestly. If you read this, you got to read this article. It's, it's called Histrionic Managers Wreck Havoc in the Workplace, published in The Humanist, Humanistic Psychologist 2014 by Renee Mueller. So again, he, he just sounds like a dick who who is a dick to other people, particularly his managers, and they react against him because he's being a dick. And he's so socially inept or so narcissistic that he, he can't recognize that he's playing a part in this. So he uses his power as a psychologist to label all 10 of these people as being histrionic. Uh, now, that's quite a claim. I really have no idea. But... You just have to read this article. It, it, it sounds to me, I mean, it's also just think about this, you know, statistically. 
when you consider that not that many people are histrionic, uh, and you, unless he had 10,000 managers in the past 20 years, you know, there's something probably wrong with him and not with his managers. I mean, you know, that person that your friend or someone, you know, that they seem to always provoke other people in the exact same way. And everyone reacts against, you know, they're like, Oh my God, uh, this boyfriend, boy, what a piece of work he is, blah, blah, blah. And then they break up and then, Oh, you know, six months later, Oh my God, I have another boyfriend and Oh my God, you know, they'll just complain in the exact same way. Well, after 10 of these relationships go by, you, as a friend, I hope would say, maybe it's not these other people, maybe it's you, or at least maybe there's something about you, <laughs> you know, is there's gotta be something of you in this equation because what's the, what are the chances? What are the odds of getting 10 histrionic managers in the span of 20 years? So, you know, uh, uh, uh anyway, <laughs> uh, okay. But, you know, so this indicates some life is left in the histrionic label in that in 2014, someone dedicated, you know, sort of a, a dickish person, but he dedicated an entire part of his career to talking about this. Okay, so that's the history of his, hysteria and histrionic. I left out a bunch of stuff, but I think I mentioned the key, moment, key moments. I just realized I think that's two and a half hours of just the history. <laughs> But the history is most of it anyway. Okay. So according to our current understanding, what is histrionic personality disorder? You know, what does it look like? We have the DSM criteria, but it doesn't, it's a, in my mind, describe it. So let me just sort of set the record straight. Today, most experts on histrionic personality disorder, they describe histrionic as excessive attention-seeking, theatrical and dramatic behavior, and high emotionality with perhaps inappropriate sexual seductive behavior, but not necessarily. So just because someone isn't sexually seductive doesn't mean that they don't have histrionic. The main, so as with borderline, the main feature that you really want to focus on is having been traumatized regarding rejection and abandonment and attachment. And therefore the rest of their life, they're extremely sensitive to being abandoned or criticized or rejected and have a lot of complexes and relationship problems because of that and, and self-esteem problems because of that. Histrionic personality disorder is all around attention. You know, with, with borderline, everyone, you know, we can say all children, they need to, they need attachment security. They need their parents to be there, to not abandon them, to not uh, be distant, okay? And then those people develop borderline sometimes. Well, also, all children need attention. They need to be paid attention to. When they draw a picture and they bring it over to you at the age of four years old, they need you to look at it and to comment on it. When they jump off of a, you know, slide and land on the ground and say, look at me, I can fly. They need you to say something and react. They need you to be there. And when you 
are denied that attention as a child, you will develop histrionic personality disorder. That's the key. You know, later in life as an adult, what do you do? To, you know, you're stuck at this young state where you're, you know, for, for a three-year-old to constantly need attention, you don't, we don't pathologize that because three-year-olds developmentally, that's just the stage they're in. They, they need you to pay attention in, in a big way all the time. They want you to, you know, so three to six or seven or something. They want you to play with them all the time. They want you to notice everything they do. Every little thing that happens, they want to tell you about it, and they need you to listen, even though usually four-year-old stories are inane. Not always, but they're not usually the most interesting stories because, you know, they haven't learned how to tell a good story yet. They are very theatrical and dramatic. You know, when you say, no, I'm not going to buy you another toy, they'll fall on the ground and throw a temper tantrum. Not because their life is falling apart, but because developmentally speaking, their life is falling apart. And they think that they need to become big in order for you to notice them. And they also will have wild emotional swings from one moment their life is over and they hate you and they hate themselves. And then the next moment they're laughing and playing. Well, that's what histrionic personality disorder is. It's because a child is denied the attention and love that they should have gotten during that time. They're stuck in this histrionic phase, shall we say of their personality. And till the day they die there, they act like a three-year-old or a five-year-old when it comes to, interpersonal relationships. You know, another thing about children is they don't really know their emotions. They don't know who they are yet. You, you know, you for, and not all kids, but in general kids, they, they don't really know. They don't really have a sense of self-esteem the way that adults do. And, and they don't, and they did, they need other people to define them. Well, again, for these people with histrionic who were denied that attention, they also need other people to define them, even if they're 55 years old. So that's, to me, how I conceptualize this. And if you don't understand that, what I just said, all that blah 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 what I just said, then it's hard to understand what histrionic is. In the same way that it's hard to understand borderline without understanding the sensitivity to abandonment and rejection, you know, if you just took the symptoms of borderline or the symptoms of histrionic, it just, it kind of looks weird. It's like, what is all this stuff? But if you understand where it comes from, then to me anyway, it all makes sense. So here are the list of symptoms that people talk about. And this isn't necessarily DSM. It's just what the experts and myself will say. Um, so p people with histrionic are, are often intuitive and charming. They're often, they can often read people well. Now, this is, can be confusing because you think, well, you know, they're quite immature. How can they be charming and intuitive and read people well? Well, because they're so needy of attention from other people, they pay attention to others quite a bit and, and learn from that experience and learn what makes people tick. And they learn how to be charming to pull people into their life because they're, they're so needy for any attention. Also, their emotionality often seems artificial and exaggerated. This is very important. It's a sort of key countertransference element. If you're with someone and 
when they're emotional, you just don't feel quite right. You, you, you might want to start looking towards histrionic. Uh, you know, it, it's a very strange feeling. And if you've ever had it, you know what it feels like. It's like the person is having an emotion like they're sad or even happy. They could be happy. They could be jubilant or they could be remorseful or they could be, they could be expressing that they really like you. And you just get this sense like something is not right about this. And I've had, I've had this experience many times where, uh, for instance, um, someone might be praising me a lot like, oh my God, you're the best. And I, you're just so important to me. And y- you just get this feeling inside, like something's not right here. You know, there, I, f- there, I, what I feel on the inside is I actually feel, I feel fear. I feel anxiety when they do this to me. And that's another important feature is like with these, with histrionic people, you'll frequently be afraid and you won't know why you're afraid. You'll feel a, a, a deep, deep sense of fear. If you're anything like me and you'll, you'll just wonder like, why, why am I, af- what am I afraid of? You know? And so that's another key feature of histrionic. Uh, histrionic people are dramatic and they may move from crisis to crisis in their life. Again, they've learned over time that if they move from crisis to crisis, they'll get more attention from people and they express feelings in an overly dramatic way because they don't trust other people will pay attention to their genuine feelings. So so it's another important thing to note. It's not that they don't have genuine feelings. They do, but they just don't trust other people because when they were a children, when they had genuine feelings, no one paid attention to them. They had to become overly dramatic to to get people's attention. So they're just locked in on that behavior. So when they have a genuine feeling, they actually will hide it from you and they'll defensively and reflexively expose you to some weird version of their emotionality, which will always feel strange from the outside. They seek attention from others. They have a persistent need to be noticed when they're not at the center of attention, they will often feel ignored, isolated, alone, and lost. So it's another important thing. So when they're, when they're just in a social situation and they're not at the center of attention, they will, it's not that they won't, so they won't just, so for non-histrionic people, when you're in a social situation, like a dinner party or something, and there's conversations going on and no one's talking directly to you, you know, you might feel a little, you know, left out, but you're not going to crumble on the inside. You're just going to be like, okay, well, you know, um, or you're even just listening. Someone's talking to you, but they're not listening to you and you're just, uh, you're listening. Well, for histrionic people, that kind of situation will trigger them. They'll, they'll not only just be kind of bored, but they'll actually feel as though everyone is ignoring them. And that's important. So as with borderline, when you, you know, for instance, like with, with severely borderline people, if you were to say something to them, like, I don't know, um, Oh, I'm busy next week. I, you know, I, I, I have surgery and I can't meet up with you. So could we meet up in a couple of weeks? Well, to a borderline person that they will interpret that as a massive rejection and they will be extremely hurt by that because it triggers their abandonment issues. And so they'll get, and they, they will often get hostile as a result because they feel as though you've done something wrong to them. Well, similar to histrionic, when they're just not the center of attention, 
they feel as though they're being a hundred percent ignored and neglected and mistreated. And so they will push, you know, the situation so that they become the center of attention, not because they feel as though they quote unquote need to be the center of attention, but because it feels balanced to them because they had a childhood where it was so imbalanced where they weren't paid attention to. And so they feel as though, okay, you know, something's got to give here. I need to insert myself more into the situation. So that's why they do it. They are often manipulative to get attention and they often are manipulative to in social situations in order to feel safe and accepted. They might use theatrical and or sexualized behaviors to gain quick attention from others. And they might even be competitive for attention. They might even report that they compete to get attention away from others and toward them. They can feel coercive to others and threatening in a way, like I was saying earlier. They might be very sexually seductive. Now, they, may, they might not be. You know, if they can get attention through conversation or through theatrical behavior or through humor or through crisis or through some, you know, bodily complaints, you know, they, they might talk a lot about their own physical problems. If they, can, if they can get attention or they've learned to get attention through those ways, and they might not have to use sex. But for many people, they find that if they use sex, they can, they can actually get attention quite easily. And so they get rewarded for that and then consequently keep doing it. So there might be lots of flirting. They might dress provocatively. They are often very concerned with their physical attractiveness and their sexual appeal. They might be really preoccupied with sex and talk about it a lot. They're more likely to have affairs. Empirically, research finds they're more likely to have affairs. When they are given attention for their sexuality, they are prone to making risky and impulsive decisions like having sex with a random person in a random place because they want that attention. Not that there's anything wrong with that behavior, but it's just a tendency for those with histrionic personality. But at the same time, they're often phobic about sex and they have less sexual desire, according to research, to have sex. And they're more often bored with sex, according to research, because and this is often a confusing thing to me. It's like, well, if you're so sexually seductive and you're so obsessed with sex, it seems like, man, you must really love sex. Well, the reason why uh, they're doing all this sexual stuff isn't because they like sex. It's just because they want attention. That's the only reason. And so for them, sex is often a bad experience for them because they're using sex as a tool to get attention, not as a mutual experience. And so their their whole life, even though they might be having lots of sex and might be you know flirting a lot and might be trying to get other people to have sex with them, they actually, when it comes down to it, they actually don't even like sex because it's just never been a mutual experience. They just, they don't like it. It's a tool to get attention, not uh, something that they do to have fun with somebody. They're often suicidal. Histrionic people are often suicidal. This is because they suffer internally from that attachment problem. And expressing suicidality has the added benefit of getting attention from other people. But they are often truly suicidal deep down because they hate themselves and they think that they're unlovable. They might suffer from a number of physical, physical complaints that can't be explained biologically. 
Now, it's always funny when we get to this sort of criterion because just because we can't explain something biologically doesn't mean that it doesn't have a biological basis. You know, uh, when we look back 100, 500 years ago, the amount of things physicians did not know how to diagnose are just, you know, numerous. And so they would often just say, oh, well, you must be hysterical because they, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. Well, similar to today, when they come to us or they go to a physician and they seem to have somatic, you know, bodily complaints that we can't explain with modern medicine doesn't necessarily mean that it's psychogenic, you know? So, but you know, people who want to get attention will often make up or even believe that they have all these physical issues because they want to get attention. Histrionic people are often very black and white thinkers because they're, they have this arrested development in early childhood. And so they, they tend to think very black and white that you, you're either all good or all bad, similar to borderline or, you know, politics can be all black or all white. Um, even literally they will often use emotion over reason and they act on how they feel rather than thinking things through. So in this way, they're very undifferentiated. Inside, you know, their psyche, inside their mind, they feel inadequate and worthless. This is very important to know. They're not just drama queens. They're not just drama kings. They're inside. They feel extremely inadequate and worthless, particularly when no one is paying attention to them. They lack an identity. They don't know who they are. They don't even really know what they want other than attention from other people. They often feel like a small child inside. They might even dress like a child and or have a baby voice. So that's one indicator is if you have someone who talks like a baby or talks like a younger person, uh, it's an indication of potential histrionic. They will often feel powerless because their entire self-worth is based on other people paying attention to them. And that's a very powerless feeling, you know, because it's hard to get attention constantly. They are very sensitive to criticism, similar to borderline, because they've been rejected and really worry about being rejected by other people. They, when, when they reflect on themselves, on themselves, they have a deep sense of their inner pain and emptiness. Again, similar to borderline. They may exist, they may exhibit helplessness, which draws people in to rescue them. So they, they might exhibit a lot of incompetence because when you're, when you're very incompetent and you get attention from, from other people, you'll find that other people will be sucked into, well, I can help you with that, you know? And so that's another indication of a histrionic. They might be prone to substance abuse because they're trying to self-medicate their problems. They often become intensely close in new relationships, similar to borderline. They often have high anxiety because they have a fear of being ignored and they don't have internal resources to help them feel secure. And so they're often quite anxious, again, similar to borderline. As you can see, there's a lot of overlap with borderline. <laughs> they're very intense. They're very reactive to people. Again, they're very warm. They can be very warm interpersonally. Uh, people can at first experience them as being extremely warm and and appealing they have low self-esteem they have uh, research has shown they have greater relationship dissatisfaction so when they, you ask them they they tend to say i've never been in a good relationship they can be very energetic or even hypomanic 
they're attracted to high risk situations. You know, they want, they want action. They want things to happen in their life. They might have rapid shifts in mood and emotion. Again, similar to borderline. And gender will often dominate their worldview. So this is a very interesting, you know, element is that they will often be hyper masculine or hyper feminine and they like other people to be hyper feminine or hyper hyper masculine. Because if you're if you're just sort of blase masculine or blase feminine, then you don't get as much attention. If you're super masculine, like, you know, lots of muscles and tattoos and, you know, the the crop top beard and the uh the I don't know, <laughs> the the affliction shirts and the I don't know. I'm stereotyping, but my point is, is that if you're super masculine, you, you tend to get at least attention. And that's the other thing that I should say that I haven't really been saying is that histrionic people, they want good attention, but if they're not going to get good attention, they'll take bad attention. You know, bad attention is a, is a close second to good attention. And so if you're hyper masculine, sure, you're going to get some people reacting against you because they don't, they don't like hypermasculine people, but, but they're getting attention. You know, they're, they're not being ignored. They're, they're being noticed by other people. And so, and you know, same gaze, same goes for hyper feminine. Um, you know, when you act hyper feminine, people pay attention to you. All right. So let's go over some of the common initial presentations in therapy because people don't come into therapy and say, I have histrionic personality disorder. I need help. They come in for other sorts of reasons. I would say 99.9% of the time, someone with histrionic will come to your office as a therapist complaining of something other than histrionic. So the first one I'll say, a common presentation that I came up with, is a man comes to therapy and instantly falls in love with his therapist and tries to seduce his therapist by talking a lot about sex. So that's the first one. Number two, someone is admitted to the hospital for a wide variety of physical problems, none of which seem to have a biological basis. Now, this one's a bit tricky because if someone comes to a hospital or to therapy and they say they have a lot of physical problems and they don't have any biological basis, the chance that they have histrionic is actually pretty slim because there's so many other possibilities that could be going on. But if you're histrionic, the chance that you will present to therapy uh, initially uh, this, or at least to the medical profession this way, is actually pretty high. Because again, you learned that a way to get attention is through drama and through physical complaints. And since you don't trust people to actually give you attention and through your own projective identification, you've created a life in which people around you actually don't give you attention. You're potentially going to unconsciously go to medical professionals for attention because you're just so desperate for someone to pay attention to you. Not because you're a liar, but you're just thirsty for attention. Okay. Number three, a woman comes to therapy after a difficult breakup and reveals that she frequently falls in love with men in authority only, only to be rejected by them eventually. So again, you have a woman who has, you know, had scores of not scores, but you know, many relationships in which she has fallen in love legitimately with her uh, authority figures 
men or women, frankly, that were older than her. And she just recently had a difficult breakup that made her feel pretty bad. And so she's coming to therapy. Okay. Number four, a man enters therapy who is suffering from suicidal thoughts and he reveals that he is stressed with his job as a therapist who specializes in treating abused children. So this is another tricky one. Not If someone presented this way, I wouldn't automatically assume they had histrionic at all. But if you're histrionic, you might actually have this profile. You might become a therapist because you are vicariously taking care of children who are being mistreated as a way of taking care of your inner child for being mistreated. And this can be, not always, but it can be a healthy way to heal for an individual to take care of children in need. And so uh, this person uh, is also lonely in his personal life and is burnt out and comes to therapy because he's depressed and suicidal and he doesn't know why. And so this person can also be histrionic. Number five, an adult who frequently acts like a child both in actions and demeanor. For example, a woman who talks like a child and is very dependent. Or another example, a man who comes across uh, a man who comes across as mostly incompetent and always in need of help from others. So this is another possible presentation in therapy. Okay, so now let's talk about what it what histrionic people will typically act like in therapy. So just to get kind of micro on this, typically for histrionic people, when you ask them, you know, because the typical first question that I probably 100% of the time ask as soon as someone sits on my couch is, how was your week or how have you been since we last talked? Well, histrionic people will answer that question in a seemingly superficial and or sort of simplistic way. They'll either say, or black and white way, they'll either say, oh my God, totally awesome. Or they'll say, oh my God, totally terrible. And they won't give much detail beyond that because they, again, lack a sense of who they are. And therefore, they lack a sense of how to experience life. They actually, because they, you know, it's like walking up to a five-year-old and asking him or her how she feels, how he or she feels about him or herself. You know, what, how do you feel about life? How's life going for you right now? Well, a five-year-old will look back at you like, what? I don't, what, you know, I just want to play with toys. You know, they're more living in the moment, shall we say. They're not reflective. And for histrionic people, it's the same. Because they were denied that developmental stage, they have a difficult time reflecting. And not that they are, refuse to reflect. It's just they lack the internal... Uh, structure to actually reflect on experience. And so when you ask them in therapy, how are things going? They'll, they'll respond in a way that feels congruent to them, but lacks, uh, lacks depth. You know, non-histrionic people will say, you know, they might say, Oh my God, totally awesome. Uh, This happened and this happened and this happened. And you know, they'll have detail or they'll say, well, I don't know, kind of the same. And let me, let me give you the, uh, pros and cons of this past week or something like that. So histrionic people, again, very black and white response, typically black and white responses without much detail. Another thing that they tend to do in the extreme cases is they tend not to remember facts very well. You might find yourself getting into uh, a lot of conversations that 
have a lot of verbal information from the client without getting a good picture of what happened. So they might be talking a lot about this or that, and you might be hearing them say English words to you. And at the end, you're, you're just left with a feeling of, I'm not quite sure if I know what's happening here. And again, because they were mistreated as children, they lack that sense of, of being able to reflect on the self and their experience. And so they don't know how to construct a empathetic narrative so that the other person will understand what it's like to be them because they have a hard time understanding what it's like to be them. Also, they seem to not care about how chaotic their life is. They'll, they'll talk about how terrible their life is. You know, they'll just say, oh, my God, this happened and it's so terrible. But they seem emotionally blasé about it. Again, this is because they never developed a solid sense of self and therefore they have a hard time integrating their experiences the way a young child does. And so they are in a habit of talking about things in a very dramatic way. They'll never just say, well, eh, you know, I don't know, just sort of a normal week. It's either got to be really awesome or really terrible. And they internally, they don't really care because that's how they frame their life all the time. They're always, or not always, but they're frequently in, in crisis. And so they, you know, won't seem to be, they won't seem to care as much as someone else would about their life going this way or that. Also, they will use excessive emotion as a defense against having to face painful, deeper realities. So you might find them in, in therapy talking or, you know, seemingly having big, big emotions, big dramatic emotions, noticeable emotions, but they don't seem to be going any, anywhere. You might get a sense that they're spinning their wheels. And again, this is not because they're assholes and they don't, you know, want to talk about deeper things. It, it's because their deeper issues are so painful to them and they have a, such a hard time trusting other people because they're mistreated and not given enough love and attention as children that they just don't, there's just no way they're going to reveal that to you initially in therapy because they just, it's so hard for them to, to trust. Also, they might seem very dependent in therapy and not very competent. They'll present in therapy as someone who needs a lot of help and someone who can't seem to figure out what to do. And what this does, particularly to uh, many therapists uh, who suffer from rescue fantasies, is they, the therapist will engage in a lot of rescue behaviors. You know, the, the client will say, oh my God, I... You know, I met this guy at a bar and I went back to his place and I, you know, I know I shouldn't have done that, but, but now I, I just don't know what to do. And, and he, he's living in my house and, and, you know, I just, I don't know. And then, you know, that will, that will cause countertransference likely in the therapist to say, whoa, 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 he's living in your house. You know, do you even know his last name? No, I don't, I just, I don't know. I just, I was kind of scared of him. And, and so now the, the client is not purposely doing this. The client is doing this again because they're mistreated and they weren't given enough attention. And so they're just in a habit of doing this sort of thing to get attention. And so the therapist gets sucked into that and will say, oh, okay, well, geez, you got to kick that guy out. And then the client will say, oh, well, I don't know how to do that. Okay, well, let me tell you exactly how to do it. In fact, I'm going to write a letter 
and I want you to read this letter to this person who lives in your house. Or do I need to call the police? You know, the therapist, I've seen this happen, literally, where the therapist will step in and call the police and say, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to have the police go to your house and kick this guy out of your house. Now, unless the client is developmentally disabled or has some other kind of issue, this this is not uh, evidence or the, the client is fully capable of of kicking out someone from their house. And the client is fully capable of not inviting someone to live in their house. But they do this, they create these situations so that the therapist will kick into high gear and prove that the therapist really cares. So, you know, the, the histrionic client ha- is so desperate for quick attention and quick love and quick caring that they will create these crises and uh, create this dependency vacuum for other people to step in. And it's a quick way for them to get attention, but ultimately it doesn't work in the end because it's, it's, it's an empty sort of attention. It's a reactionary sort of attention instead of actual compassion, which is of course what you want to head toward. Also in therapy, histrionic clients will talk about a, a lot of sexual relationship problems. They, will perhaps, again, not always histrionic people, but they might, prov- they might seemingly talk a lot about sex and, and um, they might uh, make you feel uncomfortable or they might make you feel really quite honored that, they're, that they feel comfortable enough to talk about these things with you. Okay, so now let's talk about how does histrionic personality disorder develop according to my current uh, and others understanding of histrionic personality disorder. So I just want to say my current, because if you say hysteria or histrionic to other people, even today, they're going to mean something different than what I'm presenting to you. So you should just kind of be aware of that, particularly if you go back, you know, 30, 50 years, a hundred years, you're going to get, you know, potentially a wide variety of, even what they mean by histrionic. So uh, welcome to psychology. (laughs) All right. So how does histrionic personality disorder develop? Well, so here are different scenarios from childhood that will, you know, cause the genesis of histrionic. A daughter who was painfully aware of her brothers and sorry, a, a daughter who was painfully aware that her brothers are favored So, or a son who is painfully aware that his sisters are favored. Again, gender is a big part of histrionic. There's often a huge masculinity, femininity issue within it. And so, so a daughter who is, who is being, uh, who is the scapegoat in the family and her brothers are, are the stars of the family or a son who is the scapegoat and her, and his sisters are the stars in the family. So you could see how. With this scenario, not only are you being mistreated, but you're also getting the message that your parents wish you were the, a different gender. And so you start wanting to possess the other gender. And one way you can possess the other gender is through masculinity, femininity, and sexuality, and just sex in general. So as a man growing up feeling as though your sisters are favored and, and you're not getting enough attention... You might, as a def- unconscious defense against this pain, you might 
have a fantasy of possessing women and gaining their power. Meanwhile, you really resent women because of how much love and attention they took away from you. And so you don't necessarily interact well with women. Okay. Another situation, a daughter who sees her father as having much more power than her mother or a son who sees his mother as having much more power than his father. So again, gender is a big part of this. So let's break this down. So you have a daughter who sees her father as having much more power than her mother. So he's so similar to the, to the getting attention. She's looking at her mother and just saying like, okay, I'm a female and my mother is a female and my mother has no power. She's just impotent. But my father is a powerful, aggressive man who dominates, you know, abusively this family. I want to possess his power. And one way I can do that is by learning how to flirt with men. And and when I flirt with men, I gain their power. Of course, it's a fantasy, unconscious fantasy. It doesn't really work. Another situation in which histrionic would develop is the parents only give attention to a girl regarding her cuteness or to a boy regarding his masculine traits. So a girl, they would say, oh, you know, they don't. So they don't give love and attention for, you know, her character or his character or for other kinds of a wide variety of things to give this child self-esteem. They pretty much only give attention to the boy or the girl for their feminine or masculine uh, appeal. And this can cause uh, histrionic to develop because they want attention and the only way they seem to get attention is essentially through their sexuality. And don't underestimate the power or the, the lengths that parents can go to to do this sort of thing. You know, it might to you seem sort of shocking to think about parents, for instance, giving a four-year-old child rewards for her good looks or for her sexuality. But believe me, this happens. It absolutely happens. You know, these parents were very likely abused as children themselves. And so they grow up and when they have children themselves, they sexualize their children very early sometimes. You know, just Jean Benet Ramsey comes to mind. Jean Benet is that was was that her name? You know, the little pageant kids. You know, I'm not going to condemn all pageant kids because I I don't know that much about it, but some of it seems quite provocative and over sexualized. And you know, some of these parents seemingly they don't they don't even blink an eye at it. They're just like, yep, you know, this is what we do. Okay, another situation. When the parents punish her brothers for calling them, uh, sorry. So if you have a girl and the, uh, who's growing up in a family and she has brothers and, or she just sees uh, her family punishing boys for acting like a girl, you know, in our society, it's very common to ridicule and shame boys and men for acting like girls, you know, you're a pussy or you throw like a girl or you're crying like a girl. You're not a girl, are you? And when little girls see this behavior, they think, so when I act like a boy, that's good because that means I'm competent. When I throw like a boy, that, that that's a good thing. 
And when I'm tough like a boy, that's a good thing. And when I, but when a boy acts like a girl, it's a bad thing. So therefore, I'm bad, and f- being female is bad, and I need to gain maleness by uh, through any means possible. And then as this girl grows up, she realizes, oh, if I use sex, I can actually gain male power. Another situation. When a girl becomes a teenager, she notices that her father pulls away from her because she is growing breasts. Or when a son becomes a teenager, she, he notices that his mother pulls away from him because he is starting to have sex appeal. You know, like he's taller and more muscular and this sort of thing. Another situation, a daughter's father was frightening and seductive or a son's mother was frightening and seductive. So it's all kind of similar to what I was talking about before. Um, a child who was rewarded for dramatic behavior, including physical complaints. So I, I was saying this earlier, but if, if you have a child, you know, all children need love and attention. And if you deny them love and attention, they'll, they'll, they'll come up with ways of getting it. You know, they'll experiment with ways of trying to get this love and attention. And if they find that the family reacts at least somewhat, even negatively, but gives, you know, negative attention is better than no attention. When the child exhibits physical uh, problems, then this trains the child to not only uh, react in very dramatic ways when they have a physical problem, but it, it, it actually trains the unconscious to create somatic complaints where the, the person, the, the client actually feels the pain, you know, and, it, and the, the person isn't making it up. So if you reward someone uh, for having a physical problem, they might actually, at the age of 35, just have all these phantom problems because their unconscious is, knows that if they create this, they'll, they'll get something good like attention. All right. Um, all of these uh, have uh, all of these presentations that I've been talking about, all these, all these um, genesises or genocide or whatever, all, all these beginnings, these factors that contribute to histrionic, all of these people by definition have a massive attachment injury that is persistent through their childhood, at least for a while. And these kinds of attachment injuries can be things like just being abandoned, right? You know, parents just abandon their child or one of the parents abandons the family. You can be adopted. Adoption, particularly, you know, after the first month or, you know, few weeks or something can be experienced as a massive attachment disruption. You can have an alcoholic or an addict parent. When when you have a an addict parent, that parent is usually too consumed with, with their own maintenance of their substance use to give enough attention to children. Divorce, particularly during early childhood, uh, and particularly if it drove one parent away, can be enough of an attachment injury to contribute to histrionic in addition to a whole bunch of other things. If you have a cluster B parent, if you have a histrionic parent or a borderline parent or a narcissistic parent, you are probably more likely to develop histrionic yourself. If you have a depressed parent, this is, uh, you know, a sad reality, but when you have a depressed parent, they tend not to have the energy to parent and to give attention to children. And this can help 
contribute to histrionic. If you have an abusive parent, this is a very common scenario, sexually or, or otherwise, this can contribute to histrionic. If you come from a war-torn region, if you're growing up in a region with a lot of war and, you know, your family's, your, you know, your family becomes refugees and you uh, have to uh, travel and s- survive day to day. Well, this can cause uh, parenting deficits just out of necessity and then children can develop histrionic as a result even second third fourth generation down the line after a war okay now let's talk about the treatment let's talk about the treatment for me it's very similar to borderline you don't want to step on any landmines you know because if you in therapy as a as a therapist you you want to avoid um saying things that can be interpreted as criticism or as rejection because the histrionic person is very sensitive to that. You want to uh, pay a lot of attention to process rather than content. Um, You want to stay in a safe zone of process. For example, the client is talking about having sex with a random person and you feel compelled to comment about how risky that is you know, that's content. So, you know, if someone's, Oh my God, I was having sex with this person in a bathroom and we, it was unprotected. You know, the, the common content response is, wait a second, you're having sex. That can't be good. You know, that's a content, but a process response would be, well, you know, so how did it feel in that moment? And when you look back on it, how do you, how do you feel about it? And without any agenda, you don't want to have any agenda is the point because Clients with histrionic, one, like I said, are very sensitive to being criticized and being rejected, so you're not going to help the relationship by doing that. But also, they can become very dependent on you, and if you start directing their life from their crises, it'll create a a, a destructive transference, countertransference situations that will stop therapy in its tracks. You want to use Socratic work. You want to ask questions and lead clients to where they want to go rather than telling them what to do. And here's the main thing. You want to have confidence that they are capable of, of living their own lives. Histrionic people, not all of them, but many of them can exhibit such crises in their life that it seems as though they're just completely incompetent and you'll, you'll want to step in and you'll want to fix them. But you really want to avoid that countertransference and that sucking in motion, and you want to exhibit to them that you believe in them, that they're, you know, that they can figure this out for themselves, that they're smart and they're capable, and you don't feel that you need to step in, even though you feel that you kind of do. Um, but here's the main thing. Here's the main treatment thing you need to do. You need to stay attuned, similar to borderline. You're essentially reparenting them with long-term relationship-oriented therapy, psychodynamic, interpersonal, intersubjective uh, therapy. You're giving them the attention they should have gotten when they were young. It might feel weird at times to be giving an adult this sort of attention that a child should get, you know, like, oh my God, that's so great that you did that, even though you're thinking, I'm not so sure if that's so great. But you're, you're giving them the attention that they, that they never got. And this is easier said than done because histrionic and as well as all the other 
personality disorders, particularly cluster B, can be extremely counter-transference inducing. And I, I just want to emphasize that. I haven't really emphasized that enough yet. When you're treating someone with histrionic, it is not going to feel good. It's similar to borderline. You are going to be afraid. You're going to want to run. You're going to want to reject this client. You're going to want to criticize them. You're going to want to yell at them and tell them that they should need to stop the, the madness. You're going to judge their decisions. You're going to think they're stupid or something. But that's all an inducement. That That's all them... Uh, that's you getting to know them. That's you entering their world. And that's how they feel about themselves. They feel terrible about themselves because they were mistreated as children. And so it's very hard to manage one's countertransference in the face of histrionic, but it's a critical element of effective treatment of histrionic, in addition to effective treatment of anything, but particularly for histrionic borderline narcissistic, because Oh boy, do you get triggered? So you need a you need a system. And when I talk with people about this, and I think I've said this before, you can't just say to yourself, eh, "I think I'll manage my countertransference. That's my solution." No, you need to have a full system. You need to have a full uh, model of how to deal with it. And there are many models of managing countertransference that include elements like how do I notice what I'm feeling countertransference. How do I reflect on it in each session? How do I reflect on it in the moment in the session? How do I talk about it with my consultants and my therapists and my supervisors? And how do I take care of myself around that? How do I explore my own issues as I was growing up that might relate to this? You know, you, you, there's so many different things that need to be uh, done in order to be effective in this way. All right, it is now over three hours of histrionic talk. So let me end this session by concluding that um, I learned a lot by prepping for this episode and making this episode. I had no idea that hysteria and histrionic had such a rich history. I mean, there's so much to learn about the history of hysteria and histrionic. In some way, you could say the history of histrionic is essentially the history of psychology and psychotherapy in general. Uh, in many ways, hysteria predates by thousands of years the beginning of psychotherapy and psychology. Um, you could say that um, psychology is a subset of the study of hysteria when you think about the overall you know, scope of time. Also, after reviewing all the literature, I'm glad we have the category of histrionic, and I think we need to start using it more often to assess and treat clients, because I think that it's ignored, and I think that a lot of histrionic people are coming into therapy, and they're not being labeled accurately as histrionic, and I think if they were, it would direct the treatment in a direction that could actually be helpful to them. I'm guessing there's a lot of histrionic clients that are being criticized and rejected as clients like my supervisee when she was presenting her her client to me i could easily see that histrionic client being rejected by therapists that came across her because the so many clinicians don't even know what histrionic looks like and i think if they knew what it looks looked like and knew how to treat it you know they could have some power in that but I just wish we called it something different. <laughs> it's like I said earlier, 
It's a terrible name, hysteria of the uterus. It's so dumb. Also, I think that there are many histrionic people who are suffering and who are not getting the psychotherapy they deserve. I think they're often labeled as drama queens and, re and rejected by others, like I said, including therapists. Instead, if we as a field knew about histrionic, we could be reaching out to them to help them. We could be setting up our situation. Borderline, there's, you know, because we raised awareness about it and because we've, you know, uh, at least I hope, um, have a slightly better approach to that in the field. I don't even know if that's true. But I do know that there are many therapists out there that are pretty good, uh, including yours truly, who are reaching out and saying, look, I understand borderline. I'm not afraid of it. And I have compassion for it. And I think similarly, we could be saying that for histrionic people. Um, also, it should be noted that with the right kind of therapy, histrionic can be uh, mitigated or even alleviated. It's not a death sentence. It's not a for sure thing. Similar to borderline with ongoing effective treatment, there can be a reduction in symptoms to the point where they're subclinical. So, so there's that. But in conclusion of the conclusion... I just want to say that hysteria is a very strange thing. Well, that does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Let me know what you think. I often get positive feedback to these epic journeys of uh, rabbit holing. So let me know what you think. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Did you learn something? Did you uh, fall asleep during this? Let me know. All right. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it so much.